Mike Francis, episode number 21. Mike is a dear, sweet friend of mine. Uh, I would say Canada's number one top session guitar player for the last 40 years. He's been uh, involved in the Toronto recording scene uh, for a very, very long time. His list of accomplishments is just huge, and I thought I'd share a few things with you. Uh, here's just a few people he's recorded with. Um, Alanis Morissette, Anne Murray, Dan Hill, Jim Brickman, Gordon Lightfoot, Enrique Iglesias, Olivia Newton-John, uh, Danielle Lanois, Smokey Robinson, Jan Arden, Phil Ramone. It uh, goes down to, uh, let's see, George Canyon, David Foster. Uh, and that's just a small little sample of the list here. It goes on and on and on. Um, also, uh, Mike was involved in the the huge jingle scene that was uh, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in Toronto. Uh, and we'll talk about that in the podcast. And uh, these are the some of the jingles that Mike had played on uh, Budweiser, McDonald's, Pepsi, Coke, Harvey's, uh, Miller, Molson, uh, Labatt's, GM Trucks, Esso, Ford, Pontiac, The Bay, Canadian Pacific, uh, See Pizza Pizza, Swish LA, Tim Hortons, Wendy's, Air Canada, uh, Honda, LCBO, Old South, Mazda, Eaton's, just a whole ton. That's just a small portion of the list too. And uh, Mike also played on a lot of TV shows, uh, background music, etc., and part of them, uh, The Ron James Show, Beverly Hills 90210, Street Legal, Fraggle Rock, Sesame Street, uh, The Juno Awards, Austin City Limits, Nashville Swing, The Tommy Hunter Show, uh, and that list goes on and on as well. He was also the music director on the Ronnie Prophet TV show for six years. Um, and music director on today's country live radio show from 92 to 96. Now it's syndicated uh, across Canada. He's also won uh, Producer Instrumentalist of the Year Awards a bunch. And as a producer, uh, he's produced the Mavericks, Jeff Healy, uh, Beverly Mahood, Dallas Harms, Dick Dameron, Terry Carice, Carol Baker, Matt Minglewood, uh, Anita Paris, The Good Brothers. Uh, and this list goes uh, on and on as well. So. A real brilliant guy, and uh, I remember hiring Mike Francis. I talk about it a bit. I think I got a little choked up when I talked about it. But Mike uh, was so kind to me when I hired him uh, uh, to do uh, the first session with him, and and he did a lot for me after that first session because it was so amazing. Uh, I really, really appreciate that, and I appreciate our friendship, and it was a lot of fun to sit down, and I, this is a great kind of listen. I think you'll you'll enjoy this one a lot. Here we go. Well, it is. It is. Your mom's amazing. But my, you know, she's, uh, my wife's a lot like your mom. Yeah, they're very much the same, aren't they? Yeah, very much the same. Yeah. Yeah, the house is perfect at all times, and the cooking is unbelievable, and the you know, sweet personalities, and just easy to be with yeah i like that yeah i like it too all right we're rolling we're rolling well good afternoon hey there mike how you doing darren good it's uh this is a podcast i've wanted to do for a while it's when i started doing these um you were certainly on the short list for sure of people i wanted to talk to and the cool thing was when we touched base last week and we're talking about it and you said hey do you want me to send a bio and you know, for a second I was like, yeah, no, I, you know, we'll just chat and, yeah. and stuff. But then you send it and then I looked at it and I was like, holy crap, 
I mean, I knew that you had played with a lot of people and you did a lot of stuff and the bio was just scratching the surface, but man, you've played with a lot of people. I've been, yeah, I've been very lucky. (laughs) The list is gigantic. Um, And I think it's one of those things where because you're, um, the people who know you really know you, right? Yeah. And they, they know, they know the name, Mike Francis. Peppy, we're going to figure yes. out how we got that name. We'll get into that. Um, but uh, the people outside of that, I don't think all understand, you know, everything that you've done. It's, it's pretty impressive. Well, I mean, it's just what I did. If it was my, it was my job or my career, whatever you want to call it, I, I look at it just as that's what I did. Yeah. But, uh, and I was lucky, you know, luck, luckiest guy in the world for uh, a hillbilly kid from Chatham, Ontario to, to end up doing what I ended up doing. So let's, let's kind of go back and just kind of dive into how you got started. Did you, you were born in the Chatham area then or? Yep. In Chatham, Ontario. Uh, my parents are both from there and uh, grew up there. And around that area, moved you know, moved a lot, but but always in that in that area, Chatham, Blenheim, Wallaceburg, that little area down yeah. in southern Ontario. And my dad was uh, um, much like your family, I guess. I grew up the same way as you did. Uh, my dad was a country singer. Yeah. And uh, you know that was his dream, and that never quite happened for him. But um, so I, you know, luckily for me, I, I grew up hearing. The music that he loved, which was uh, you know, Bob Wills, Ray Price, Hank Williams, whatever, you know, all, yeah. all that, that era of country music. But we lived close to Detroit, so I also grew up listening to Motown, oh, yeah. which saved my life, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not, and, and I love country music, don't get me wrong, but it's, you know, it's, it, it really is nice to have both influences. And at the same time, my mother, who wasn't a musician at all, uh, loved singers like uh, Nat King Cole. Yeah. It's one of the best singers in the world. Yeah. Uh, so I got that influence as well, right? Uh, so it was, yeah, so it was sort of organic or, or all by accident. So did your dad play any instruments? Was he a guitar player at all? Or? He was a strummer, an acoustic yeah. guitar strummer. But I mean, he could, he could play drums. He could play bass. He, he, was, uh, he could have played a bunch of different instruments really well if he decided to, uh, if, if he had chosen to, right? But he, yeah. he wanted to be uh, uh, the front man. He wanted to be the star. And... Uh, it was his, you know, the big dream, which uh, he had, a, when I was a little kid, my dad, I mean, a little kid, like three, four, five years old, my dad and his band had a, a, a weekly radio show in Chatham, Ontario on CFCO Radio in Chatham. Right. And it was the old fashioned country, you know, f- uh, half an hour radio show on Wednesday yeah. nights from 7.30 to 8 o'clock or whatever. And, uh, and they played the hits of the day and, you know, uh, live like in a little cramped studio, yeah. you know, five-piece band and, and just blasting away in a little studio and for half an hour a week. And he opened, he was the open, his band, him and his, he and his band were the opening act for uh, a lot of the Nashville artists of the day, uh, like uh, Farron Young, uh, Jim Reeves, yeah. uh, Brenda Lee, you know, all those kind of people that, that had big hits, Patsy Cline, uh, Loretta Lynn. Yeah. Uh, so they were the opening act, and sometimes they backed up the big stars if they didn't bring their own band. Some, yeah. and then other times they, you know, they did bring their own band. So he had he got to that place, and then he had a wife and a kid, and it, he couldn't. It was hard to move on, right? Yeah. You know, to move past that, and it was hard to leave a wife. And he wasn't the kind of guy to leave a wife and kid behind and, and say, oh, "Well, I'm going on the road. See you later." You know. Yeah. So uh, he. You know, it didn't happen for him, basically, but uh, yeah. didn't quite get his due, but he certainly made a good stab at it. It was, uh, 
I like how you describe his playing. He's a strummer. Yeah. And that it's perfect. I mean, not too many people describe a front guy who plays acoustic as that, but that's a lot of time. That's what it is. That's they, exactly the yeah, gig. Yeah. They're there. The instruments there for comfort. Yeah. To some degree and to strum along and, but you're a singer and yeah, your instruments are definitely a secondary thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was his, uh, his approach to, uh, to it. But I mean, he was a talented guy yeah. he, and he could have played, as I said, played, you know, he played drums. Uh, the, the uh, he went on the road, two times in his life uh, give it a little shot for a couple months each time never really uh, went that far but the one the second time that he did it uh, which is when I stumbled into to playing the guitar more was he was playing drums with Gary Buck's band who's oh, a, yeah. Gary Buck who you know I'm sure yep. Canadian icon and uh, so you know he that was a his sort of last uh, hurrah and then he came home and said ah this isn't going to work and I don't like it anyway you know so, yeah. you know, so uh, let's just go go home so what what made you choose the guitar? Was, was that the first, I imagine that's the first thing you kind of dove into? Yeah, it was the only instrument in the house. That's why yeah. I chose it. And actually at first, um, I started playing when I was about eight years old because my mother hinted to me very clearly. She said, you know, your dad would really like it if you took up the guitar a little bit. And I said, eh, I don't know. My, you know and I, I wanted to play baseball or something at the time, but I wasn't any good at it, but I wanted to play baseball. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I finally started messing around with the guitar and, uh, and, and my, my dad, like I said, had limited knowledge, showing me a little bit. And, uh, and so that, yeah, it, it, that was the only instrument in the house. There wasn't a piano and there, you know, in, in, that, in the world that I lived in, uh, I'm an only child, so, you know, um, I didn't have that many other influences, right? Yeah. Uh, so you're kind of on your own. And uh, you pick up what you pick up from your parents, basically, when you're, a, uh, you know, an only child. So I, you know, like I said, heard my mother's what my mother liked, what my dad liked, and then found out I liked Motown at the same time. So that's pretty cool mix. Yeah, so it's a wild mixture and then a weird mixture, and uh, and then the, you know the guitar thing just evolved. So did you were you teaching yourself or did you have a teacher? Yeah, just taught you. Mm -hmm. Never studied. <laughs> no, uh, l later um, I'll tell. We'll, we'll probably cross. Yeah, we'll cross. Uh, uh, we'll go across this later. I'm sure. But uh, no, I, I did. I, I took some lessons in my 20s because for uh, not to play, not for guitar playing, but for other reasons yeah. uh, that I was desperately in need of help at the time. But no, I'm self-taught. So yeah. uh, I, I picked up the guitar and. And when I got really serious about it, or when I got the disease, it was basically out of loneliness. Right. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, honestly, sounds just like a sad story, but it wasn't sad. It just was what it was. Well, I was very much the same. I mean, I mean, I had an older brother and an older sister, but when I started, it was we lived rural, yeah, in the country. Um, there wasn't much to do. There's only two or three channels, and mm -hmm. um, there wasn't the internet. Yep, and you listened to a lot of records and. And that's, you know, for how I learned, just listening and trying to yeah. lift. Yep. Um, and you gravitated, gravitated to, the, to the fiddle. Yeah. I did have fiddle lessons when I started, but other instruments I played, I definitely, I mean, I, I took fiddle f lessons for a while. Yeah. Until I, I think I felt comfortable. And then I just didn't like lessons. Yeah. I, I didn't like, I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. And learn the way I wanted to learn. Um, whether that was smart or not, I don't know. Uh, but it's, I think 
it doesn't matter how you get there. No. As long as you get there. As long as you get there, yeah. Yeah, yeah no, that, that's absolutely true. And it, it's sort of the same thing with me. It's just like there, there was no rhyme or reason to it. It was uh, all by accident. Yeah. It was just a series of, you know, as I've, I've told people before, it was kind of like a Marx Brothers movie. It was a, a bit of a comedy sketch, really. It's like it just, I, how did you get, you know, uh, from here to here? I don't know. It just happened. It just, you know, yeah. like the circumstances, basically, of your life. Like you said, living in the country, there's not much else to do. Yeah. And I lived in a little town, you know, there's not much to do there. So when you're teaching yourself, do you remember, were you listening to records and trying to copy what was going on? Or were you just sitting trying to figure out, obviously your dad would teach you some chords and um, that thing, but what, do you remember your method of learning? Uh, well, uh, I can tell you how it happened, mm -hmm. which is probably the, the simplest way to, to get there. Um, my dad had, you know, on limited ability on a few instruments, like I said, like yeah. drums, bass, guitar, and that, that was probably about it. And, uh, you know, he knew a few chords, but not a lot, right? Um, so uh, he showed me what he knew, which was five or six chords. And I was happy with, with that when I was a kid. And I wanted to really, when I was like 10, 12 years old, I just wanted to... Uh, I wanted to be like my dad. I wanted to be the singer in the band. Yeah, and and I was happy just strumming and uh, and singing, and I I uh, I was in my first little band when I was thirteen, and and uh, we did it. Our, my first gig was a New Year's Eve gig, wow. and I knew about a dozen songs, you yeah. know, and uh, playing with guys that were all uh, you know thirty years older than me. Yeah. I was thirteen years old, and, and we made we played New Year's Eve and made three dollars each. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's and that's usually double though. You usually get on New Year's Eve. Right? Or four times. Yeah. yeah you, you, so that, I don't know what they made, you know, on a regular gig, a buck and a half or a dollar. I don't know. But uh, that was my first real gig was this, with this band and we made three dollars. I thought, wow, I've made it. You know, yeah. And, uh, you know, it sang my dozen songs and uh, that was it. So what what happened was, what, 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 how it evolved from that was... Uh, um, when I was 14, um, the, the, the day after grade eight ended, we moved from Chatham. Yeah. And uh, we moved to Sault Ste. Marie because that's when my dad went on the road with Gary Buck, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And so uh, we moved to Sault Ste. Marie. I'm 14 years old. Uh, my dad goes on the road playing you know, all over Ontario with Gary Buck. My mom went and got a job because we needed the money. Yeah. And I'm at home alone. And, I'll, and I didn't know one person in Sault Ste. Marie, not one human being, nobody. Yeah. So you're 14 years old. All I had was a bunch of Chad Atkins records, and I had my dad's acoustic guitar, and I had never th aspired to becoming, I, like a few times in the, the little band I was in, they had said to me, why don't you play some solos? I said, oh, I don't know how, I don't want to do that. I just want to sing. Yeah. So I sat down with his guitar, his old Gibson acoustic, which was the, the first guitar I'd ever played, and uh, these Chad Atkins records, and I just beat myself up every day for about eight hours a day while my mom was at work. But like I said, I was lonely, right? Yeah. I had nothing else to do. So I sat there going, you know, tried to get the thumb going with the thumb pick going, doing dick, 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 learn to do that and then try and get the melody on top of doing dick, doing dick, doing dick, clunk, 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 ding, dick, doing dick, clunk, clunk, falling apart. And I, you know, I did that for about two months, day in and day out. And then one morning I woke up and I put on the Chet Atkins record and, and put on Freight Train, 
and I picked up the guitar and I went and I went doom dick doom dick doom dick doom dick and I was it was just like it was doing it itself or like the guitar was playing it itself I went whoa whoa wait wait a minute what is I I just I you know like after all that time it's 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 because music or any it's is like a sport it's all uh, muscle memory right yeah so it's it just finally sank in I guess and I found myself I, I could play freight train like oh. I and I'd been trying to play freight train for two months right yeah and finally I because I was just either lonely enough or bullheaded enough too that's the other thing stupid and bullheaded and I just kept doing it all day long and finally I got up one day and there it was I wasn't stumbling I could get through it and then I learned another one and then I learned another one and then I learned another one you know all Jack and stuff and I had a, a few other records at the time uh, but be, because the Chet stuff lent itself to the fingerstyle kind of picking, and, yep. and uh, then the, the I was playing in a in a, uh, a little band in, at the time in Sault Ste. Marie where we were living, and uh, I was playing snare drum literally, like it was like the set. Uh, you know, it wasn't. I didn't have a set of drums. I had a snare drum and a hi hat. Yeah, <laughs> you know. That was, what else do you need? What else? Well, that's all they needed at the Opry. That's what they they used yeah. at the Grand Old Opry, right? So that's uh, you know, like the guys in in this particular band said, that's all you need. And I said, okay, fine. So I, you know, I could do that because my dad showed me how. He said, here, you just do this, and they, you know, just you don't have to do nothing else. Okay, fine. Yeah. Play the backbeat and and play a little bit of hi hat. There you go. So. Uh, uh, what the magic that, or what what opened my eyes, uh, or, or or I guess validated it for me was, I, as I briefly mentioned a while ago, I was always terrible at sports. I was literally terrible, like the last guy that anybody wanted on their team, right? Yeah. And whatever sport it was, baseball, hockey, football, for, forget it. I was terrible. And then I I stumbled into you know this thing. I could play some tunes like Chet Atkins. And uh, I was with these older guys in this band playing snare drum, and we were uh, doing a rehearsal or something like that. And I picked up somebody's guitar and started playing Freight Train one day. And all these 35-year-old guys looked at me and said, hey, how do you do that? And I said, what do you mean? It's just this. And they said, slow it down and show me. And I went, oh, the little light went off. I can't play baseball. I suck at, at hockey, but... Maybe I found my thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, maybe I found something that that actually makes me feel like I have some uh, a purpose in life, and you know, and and say gives me some satisfaction, right? As so I'm not embarrassed about, basically. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, the, out of that uh, that vacuum of loneliness, and also just being bullheaded, and saying I'm going to figure out how to do this, I stumbled across that, and. Uh, uh, make a long story short as possible. When we, uh, about a month or so after that, a couple months after that, we were only in Sault Ste. Marie, Marie for about three and a half months, and we moved back to Chatham uh, in early October. And my dad, when we got back, um, got uh, his old job that he had previously back and uh, a day job, and and uh, so we, you know, we were do- getting by, doing okay, and. Uh, my dad said, well, I'd like to start, I'm going to start, an, he said, I've got an idea, I want to start another band, um, but I want to start it with a bunch of young guys like you, and uh, find some young guys that can play, and, he's, and, and, you know, we'll put it together, and it'll be, it'll, you know, it'll be cool and fun, we can play together, and, yeah. and it was cool, it was, the same, again, the same kind of thing that, you know, that, that you went through with your family, right? Yeah. And uh, I said, that sounds great, and he says, yeah, you can play bass, you know, he said, I can show you how to play bass, and I said, 
no, Dad, I, I want to play lead guitar. And he said, I, yeah, I, I know you, you, you may want to do that, but I don't have time to, to wait for you to learn how to do that, is what he said, right? Yeah. And, and he'd been away. Oh, yeah. So he, he'd, he'd never heard me play. Yeah. And so I, I kept saying, no, but I want to play guitar. And he said, no, no, we'll get you a bass and I'll show you how to play it. And, it, you know, it's not that hard and it'll be fine. And I, I said, well, but, you know, I, uh, and so I didn't, you know, like the, you know how it is with a son and a father. I mean, there's only so much you can, uh, yeah. <laughs> that you want to get before you're going to get in trouble <laughs> with your dad. You don't want to argue. So I finally waited till he came. I, I, this went on for a few weeks. And finally, when he came home from work one night, and he was sitting there reading the paper on the couch in the living room, and I, I put on the Chet Atkins record, and I got out the acoustic guitar, and I started playing along with the record. I played along with with Freight Train, actually. I played along with one song, and the paper comes down, and he looks at me and says, can you play any, any other songs on that record? And I said, yeah. The next one I played it, and the next one I played it, and the next one I played it. He looked at me and said, okay, tomorrow we're going to go find you an electric guitar and an amp. You're the, you're the guitar player. <laughs> I said, good. So that was the start of the whole, yeah. you know, and I basically, as I tell people, yeah, with, this is tongue in cheek, but I, I basically, at that point in my life, I got the guitar disease, Yeah, you know, like music slash guitar disease. And uh, so I've, same as you, I've always been self-taught. Um, I, I didn't take any lessons because yeah. uh, I stumbled on it. And then I just was, you know, I used to just, I used to go to sleep with the thing on my lap, like laying down in bed. I would have the, the guitar on my stomach playing it. You know, and fall asleep, Same, wake yeah. up in the morning and start playing again. And I'd come home from school at lunch, play guitar, run back to high school. This was, you know, high school days. And, you know, uh, come home for like, even for, for 20 minutes just to play the guitar, you know, and then run back, you know, and then come home from school. The minute I got home from school, play the guitar. And then my mother was dragging me out of the bedroom for dinner, you know, like oh, yeah. literally, physically, you know, like if I have to drag you, I will. Yeah. Put it down and come eat. Oh, okay. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> well, that really shows that you're really meant to play. I, mean, I don't it's, know. It's because you don't get that with everybody. I think, I think there's certain people who, who find their thing and whether it's a musical instrument or if they play tennis or something. Mm -hmm. And what makes you really good is that drive to just keep playing and playing and playing and playing. And, uh, um, I mean, it's, I think you would have found yourself, there, no matter what happened, probably. Maybe I guess, but yeah. you know, the you know, again, like I said, it was a lot of luck. I mean, it was it was the fact that there was only a guitar there. There was only the Chet Atkins records. Um, my dad was away. My mom went and got a job. I'm alone. We were in Sault Ste. Marie. Yeah. It's all those factors when you add it happened, all up. Yeah. It's all those things come together. And it's like, and then out of it came something good. Yeah, uh, it was painful at the time. <laughs> you know, because like I said, I was just plain lonely. Yeah. But but at the same time, uh, something really good came out of it, and then I I got the disease, and then I couldn't put the thing down. So what was the what was the first guitar you got? Do you remember what it was? The first real or the first electric guitar was uh, uh, a little Fender Mustang. Yeah, uh, which was a cool little guitar, N not really a pro instrument, but I I, uh, I lucked out and got a really good amp. It was a Fender Super Reverb. Oh wow. A brand new Super Reverb at the time, which was a really cool amp, uh, and the guitar was okay. And a few years later, when I after I went on the road for a year or so, I, I you know upgraded to to a, yeah. a better guitar. But uh, the little Mustang did its job, and and you know I mean it was uh, it was a good enough instrument at the time. Yeah. So you started with the band there with 
the younger, yeah, younger guys, and you did that for a little while. I did, yeah, I did that for until uh, I was seventeen, mm-hmm. and about uh, seventeen and a half, or getting close to eighteen. Um, because we, we, my dad and I were lucky. We managed to find a young drummer. Yeah. It was they were all a few. The guys were all a few years older than me. I was always the kid yeah. in the band. But uh, the drummer was a few years older than me. The bass player was a few years older than me. And then we got lucky and found a really good steel player that was just a few years older than the other guys. And so we were. The, he, you know, he would. He was the other than my dad, who was, you know, in his thirties. This that guy was like twenty two or three. He was the yeah. older kid in the band, right? And uh, it was a nice little band. We had a lot of fun. We did that for about two and a half years, at least, maybe close to three, almost three years, and uh, had a ball. And then... Uh, Are you in touch with any of those guys? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I still am. Yeah, two of them. Actually, all three of them. Actually, no, I'm, yeah. I'm wrong. All three of them. Yeah, still in touch with them. And they're great guys and good friends. So yeah. the, I just saw one of them uh, a couple months ago. He came to see me play in Richmond Hill. And... Uh, and then I've, I talked to one of the other guys, the guy that played bass uh, on the phone, you know, every other week. Wow, that's so, great. Yeah, still good friends. Yeah. So, uh, so that was a lot of fun, and it was funny. Uh, uh, then, I, I guess you know, I, I, I'm the older guy in the, you know, from me in the band uh, was that steel guitar player who yeah. was, uh, you know, more mature, obviously, than I was at. 15, 16 years old. Yeah. Um, and uh, when I was 17, I was, you know, talking to him and I didn't even realize it, but I must have been saying to him at the time, you know, I like, he's, he was basically saying, because he was trying to, he, he was involved with a music uh, a conservatory, a, a company that, that gave lessons and, and sold instruments and stuff like that, right? Yeah. But, uh, you know, back then the, the big focus was accordion. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and maybe a, a lap steel. Yeah. And then a little bit of guitar. They had a few guitar students. So I, I, he got me teaching guitar for him when I was like 15, 16, which I had no reason to be doing at all because yeah. I, I didn't know anything. I was just making it up. Yeah. You know, I was just making anything up. You know? uh, but so that, I did that uh, f- for a year and a half or so for him. And during that period, I was talking to him and I must have said to him, you know, like I, he said, what do you want to do? And I said, because I, he, he, he was trying to get me to to work for him as a teacher. And I said, I don't really want to do that. And he said, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want to go on the road because I wanted to learn how to, uh, I wanted to play more and I wanted to play with more experienced players and, and I wanted to learn. Yeah. And I, there was no, there was never in my household just because the, the world I grew up in, my parents were not uh, rich people and they weren't uh, that sophisticated. So I mean, there, there was never any concept of going to college or university yeah. for anything. Yeah. Let alone to study music. I didn't even know that you could go study music and, you know, yeah. at, at university or, or I didn't know that such a thing existed, right? That's how naive and stupid I was. So uh, it just, you know, I thought, well, the next logical step is to go on the road. So, um, you know, 17, that's, you know, that, so that steel player went to my dad and my dad said, what's going on, what's going on with, with, uh, with Mike? He says, oh, I've been talking to him. He wants to go on the road. That's what he wants. And uh, uh, long story short, my dad knew a guy uh, in Detroit who managed a bunch of bands. He had run across this guy through the work that he did with all the Nashville artists, right? Yeah. And uh, so he knew this guy and he called him, said, look, my kid's playing guitar and he, he wants to go on the road. And the guy said, well, I got a guy right now that's got a record out and he's doing well. I mean, he did have a, a record that was doing well in Michigan and Ohio in that area. Yeah. 
And uh, he said, we can have him come down because he's, he's putting a band together right now. So why don't you bring, bring the kid down and we'll do an audition. Well, I went and auditioned with him, got the, got the gig, and my, my parents dropped me off in Detroit with my mother crying. <laughs> <laughs> see you later. <laughs> my dad's saying, yeah, getting rid of me, right? He's see you later. And my mother's bawling, saying, no, oh, he's my baby. And my dad's saying, shut up, Lois, he'll be fine. <laughs> he's almost a man. He'll be good. He's 17. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. When he comes home, he'll be a man. Yeah, exactly. So they, he just basically threw me to the wolves, you know, let me go. So what was that like in that first, did it feel like that was your first real, I guess, pro experience for you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That was it. Um, but it was a funny experience because I, you know, like I was 17 and then a few months later, turning 18, and you know, I was, I, I didn't even finish high school. So I was, you know, uh, the last year I just didn't go to high school. My mom, mom and dad were both working, and they didn't know that I wasn't going because oh, yeah. they were gone all day. Yeah. They'd come home and say, How was school? It was great. You know, yeah, whatever. And then, of course, when I got my marks, you know, and I got 12 in math and 15 in geography, they said, What's going on? <laughs> I guess you have to be there. Yeah, you have yeah. to show up once in a while. You can't just sit and play guitar all day. So, yeah, anyway, I ended up on the road with these guys, a bunch of guys um, who lived in, in the Detroit area, but they were all from West Virginia, uh, Kentucky, right. uh, Arkansas, um, stuff like that, you know, the, the southern states. So yeah. all these southern guys who are all 10, 12 years older than me. And, um, you know, my idea was that I was going to go on the road and learn how to play from these guys, yeah. you know, from guys that were older and more experienced. And uh, it, it didn't quite turn out that <laughs> way. <laughs> they, they were there to chase girls, and I, I was, you know, like they, they would party all night, and uh, I'd wake up at 8 in the morning because I was just a kid out of high school, and I didn't drink. I'd go down to the bar because the bars opened at 8 in the morning and, and uh, in, in different states, yeah. depending upon the state you're in. I'd go down there, my guitar and amp were there. I'd sit there and play guitar all day. Oh, yeah. And they'd come down at like 2 in the afternoon when they got up and say, what the hell are you doing? And I said, I'm doing my job, man. I'm practicing. Yeah. Said, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. <laughs> <laughs> I went, well, it is for me. I don't know about you. But anyway, I got various kinds of educations from, from those guys. Oh, I bet. As you can well imagine, yeah. Well, still at that age, being that disciplined and wanting to play and not get caught up in this, you know, other stuff that was going on, yeah. um, it, you know, that's, pretty interesting as well I mean, that's dedication even at that age yeah it it just I, di I just didn't I didn't know any better I was pretty naive but I just was there thinking well I got a chance to play guitar I want to play guitar yeah and I want to learn everything I can learn and I, I mean you know and the drummer uh, that played in my dad's band ended up a few months after uh, I first went on uh, I had been on the road for a few months he ended up in that band with me because right. we needed a drummer the drummer left and I said well what about the kid that played with my dad and he said, sure, yeah, you, you think he's good, get him. So we got him, and uh, him and I used to go down, and we'd sit there and, you know, try and play jazz tunes or bossa novas or pop tunes or yeah. Stevie Wonder tunes, you know, and, and uh, just the two of us, guitar and drums all day long, right? Yeah. And then play at night, uh, you know, uh, have, have dinner and have a nap and go play it and then go to bed, get up in the morning, go back to the bar and play all day. It's, you know, it's a common thing. I, I talk about it. It's back then you didn't have those distractions like every kid has now which no. you could hop on the internet and you could be you know faced and i mean that was your internet basically mm -hmm. um that was you playing a video game or mm -hmm. whatever way you want to look at it um absolutely right and you wonder 
if you know if you were a young kid now you know what type of you know do, do you have that same discipline when there's so many other things to to drag you away yeah or do you have the incentive there is yeah. no you know like the, that's the not a, you know it, it, life changes and you got to you know understand uh, that, that it does and it's not going to be the same for uh you know f- uh, the, the kids that would be my kids or, or grandkids or something but yeah. um yeah the the incentive is not there to become for example a great oboe player yeah <laughs> maybe there's a lot of guitar players and a lot of drummers and you know but like like things orchestral instruments that that's one thing a lot of people worry about like what's the incentive to become a great bassoon player or a, yeah. you know in in the symphony like there isn't any no because they got you can push a button and there's there's a bassoon there's a bow, an oboe there's whatever you want right so that's that's a tricky one and and yeah if with all those other distractions would you spend all that time playing the guitar maybe or probably not you know yeah but it's all there was yeah so that it's irrelevant in a way yeah and and again like i was alone i was out there you know with three other guys but they're all older than me and i don't really have that much in common with them right yeah so i just go down to the bar and play all day and and play anything like literally anything try and play anything and a lot of it was horrible i'm sure but you know some things you know you you it's trial and error you stumble across one good idea and and you get excited and that that keeps you going for a, you know a week or two weeks or a yeah. month and then you you stumble across another idea and that keeps you going and and you get uh, you know you start to build up you know some skills i guess basically yeah so where'd you go from from that band where was your next uh well there was there were three years uh of living in detroit and playing with various bands like show bands country bands uh, uh you know rock bands yeah. you know like like uh, rock bands like uh Green's Clearwater, the play tunes like that or, or the Beatles or you know or, or yeah. you know that kind of that kind of uh not heavy metal or anything like that, but that kind of rock and roll. Yeah. And uh so I played with you know this guy managed various bands and I played uh he'd just stick me with whoever needed a guitar player for three months or six months or whatever. And uh, that happened for three years and then I realized well uh for a number of reasons I didn't want to live in the United States and I didn't want to be an American citizen. Nothing wrong with either one of those things, but I just want, I realize that Canada is a different place and I like it. It's, yeah. I wanted to go home. I was lonely for home, right? And so I, I came home and, um, and then I, you know, quickly realized uh, there's nothing to do here in Chatham. Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing. So if I'm going to do anything, I have to go to Toronto because that's the only place in Canada where there's a real, industry music industry with yeah. like you know recording studios and you know uh, record companies publishing companies musicians singer songwriters and, and records being made and, and all kind of stuff so I, I migrated to uh to toronto and um got uh, you know again you know it's there's always it's funny how, how there's always people along the way and I, I can't count how many uh, I can only mention a few of the names but because you know we're not going to talk for that long but there's always people that come back in your life that were in your life before yeah. th- that you may have met ex- accidentally like um, that help you like for example I came to Toronto and and I only the only person I knew was that guy Gary Buck that my dad had played with for, yeah. for a few months so I called Gary and he was he was a pretty big time Canadian producer he had had a big hit in the states um, a few years before that, and um, as, as an artist, but he was producing a lot of records and he knew a lot of people. And so I called and said, Gary, you know, I've been working in, in Detroit for three years and doing this and doing that, and, and I, I, 
I want to move to Toronto. And do you know anybody that I could uh, find a gig with? And he, he said, yeah, I got a friend. He's looking for, for a guitar player right now, a guy named Ron McLeod, who had a TV show in Hamilton. Yeah. And so I, I you know, called him. I said, Gary told me to call you. And he said, yeah, come on down, audition. So I did it, got that gig, and uh, did that for a year, just under a year with him. And then that gave me the courage to move to Toronto. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and Yeah. And so I... You know, I actually moved to Port Credit, <laughs> which was close enough to Toronto for me. Yeah. Because I didn't want to live in the big city. That was the thing. The other thing I wanted. I grew up in a little town. I still wanted that kind of atmosphere. Yeah. Because that was the lifestyle I was used to. Right. So it was just a little tiny town, but it was 20 minutes away from downtown Toronto at the time. Yeah. So it's not anymore. It's about an hour and a half. Not not that they moved the town. It's just driving. <laughs> <laughs> it's, there's that many more cars. No no more no more pavement. But you know a thousand times as many cars. So yeah. uh, uh, but then it was close to Toronto as far as time was uh, time goes. And uh, you know, I moved to Port Credit and you know worked with other people. Um, the, the gig with Ron McLeod ended. Ended up working with Ronnie Hawkins. Worked with uh, Dallas Harms, uh, had my own band for a while, yeah. um, and then during some somewhere during that period, which you know would be, you know, because if I was in Detroit for three years, so when I came back, I was twenty, and I turned twenty-one, playing in at a bar in Oakville, yeah. and uh, uh, then uh, it was funny. I, again, like it's, it's funny how people come back into your life that are that end up being uh, important influences or mentors or whatever you know whatever they are or just friends because really good friends but uh, one guy we were talking about uh, before you push the record button was uh, uh, one of the sweetest guys I know Stevie Smith who's a steel guitar player yeah. that we both admire and uh, um, I ran into Stevie somewhere and uh, he said hey man how you doing you know because I had met him in the states yeah when we were both down there playing, he was playing with another band and that, that the same manager okay, they yeah. managed, right? He was yeah. with another band and I saw him with a couple different different people. We never played together then. We did jam a little. We did some some matinees together and stuff like that, just playing and having fun. And I just, I knew he was a you know, absolutely amazing still guitar player, a beautiful guy and a beautiful musician. And, and his brother's a great bass player. So I ran into them, and uh, that was after I was with Hawkins, and after actually I played with Gary Buck for a while, and then uh, um, before I played with Dallas, I, I had my own band for yeah. a little while, and I had those guys in my band, Steve and Greg, and uh, uh, so the, and that, again we've been friends ever since, right? We've been yeah as close as brothers can be, basically. Yeah. So uh, that's like my extended family. So that you know one thing led to another, to another, to another, and then. Uh, uh, in that area somewhere, because uh, Steve and Greg and uh, a couple other people I had met were already doing some some little country records in yeah. Toronto. And they said, hey, do you want to do some of these sessions with us? And I said, sure, yeah, why not? Uh, I'd been in a studio two or three times, about three times maybe in my life by the, at that point, and uh, uh, didn't have a clue, <laughs> you know, didn't know anything. Because yeah. it's, it's another world. Yeah, it's totally different. Yeah, yeah it's totally different than playing live you know, in anybody's band. And uh, so I, I, uh, I said, sure, you know, uh, you know again, naive as, as uh, green as you can be, and started doing sessions for this record company that was in Toronto at the time. Uh, it was called Marathon Records. Uh, I remember them. Yeah, we used to affectionately call it Rush Records. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, it was like, just get through it as fast as you can was the mandate, right? Yeah. But 
but I sound like a five-year-old, but <laughs> or a twelve-year-old. But but uh, at 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 the time, uh, it was an opportunity to be in a recording studio with good musicians and and a real real recording studio with a, a good engineer, and find out oh wow I don't sound as good as I thought I did, and then kind of learn how uh, how. Uh, how things get put together yeah. and how you make, you know, how you make a record and how you play parts and how you come up with ideas, uh, how you put things together, how, so, how, how you take turns, you know, somebody says, okay, so like, especially in those days when you're in a hurry all the time, it's like, okay, so uh, the steel guitar played the intro on the last tune, the guitar player's got to play the intro on this one, you know, or the piano or something, you know, so yeah. you, you got the intro, you got the fills in the first verse, he's got the fills in the chorus and I got the solo and he's got the, you know, and then the next tune, it's, you know, he's switch got to yeah. you know, switch it up and you just keep going around and around. So it's not always boring. And that was kind of my initiation into that world. And then, uh, you know, it, uh, it evolved. Uh, and, and uh, you know, a couple of years later, I stumbled into, uh, as I told you earlier, what I call the working with the big shots, which was a whole completely other different world. Yeah. So how did that come about? How did your kind of your first call into that? It was again just uh, an accident. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it was like uh, you know, I've I've had, as um, you know, my dear sweet dad used to say, more good luck than good management. You know, and <laughs> knock on wood and say thank you. But I mean, the the truth is, I I did some demos. I was doing you know playing bars still, and uh, playing some of the, on some of those little country records, and then a few rock and roll records, a very few, and then I uh, I did some demos at a studio for a, a folk singer named Tom Gallant, mm -hmm. a Canadian uh, singer-songwriter who's very talented, had a show on CBC for a, a couple summers and uh, just some demos for him at this little studio. But the engineer um, who had, was at that studio uh, uh, worked, for, uh, worked for, the, for the studio, which was owned by a guy named Ben McPeak. And that, that engineer was also a really good bass player. Oh, yeah. And I didn't even know it when I did that demo because he was just engineering. He wasn't playing bass, but he was a heck of a good bass player too, like incredibly good and a really good engineer. So um, we hit it off. His name is Jim Morgan and he's still a dear friend and I, like, <laughs> and I thank him every day, trust me. And, and, and uh, he, the man that owned the studio was a, a gentleman named Ben McPeak. And Ben uh, had been a was a big was still a big deal and this was like um, nineteen we're, we're up at nineteen seventy five now yeah so you know a lot of time has gone by because I went on the road in sixty nine oh yeah so uh, this is nineteen seventy five and uh, Ben had been a big deal in the jingle uh, industry uh, in the fifties sixties and uh, and even uh, the the you know up to the the mid seventies and he had also been the guy that uh, did orchestrations, uh, orchestral arrangements for, uh, a lot of the big Canadian rock bands like the guess who and, yeah. and you know, all those kind of the stampeders and all those kind of people if they needed a, a, you know, strings and orchestral instruments, Ben McPeak was the guy that did that work. Yeah. A very talented man and a sweet man. And, um, um, so anyway, Jim went to him and said, look, you should hire this kid. I worked with him last night and he's really good. I think, you know, I think he's good. You should hire him. And uh, so I, I did, uh, you'll know, like this, uh, the, I got a call to do a, uh, um, from a lady who was Ben's contractor, mm -hmm. 
contracted musicians and singers for him. And she, she, she said, I'm looking for Mike Francis. I said, yeah, that, that's who I am. She said, uh, well, um, you just worked the other night at, the, at Captain Audio, the stu- which was the recording studio with uh, Jim Morgan. I said, yep. And she said, okay, so I got the right guy. And uh, she said, uh, uh, would you like to do a jingle? Are you available? She said, not would you like to, but are you available to do a jingle next Tuesday morning with Ben McPeak, who owns the studio? And, and I said, what's a jingle? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's how stupid I was, right? What's a jingle? Okay, uh, and she said, you know, like a TV commercial or a radio radio commercial, and and, that, and then of course the light bulb went off. I said, oh yeah, right. There's music in those things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I never thought, you know, that there were live people there playing, but obviously there have to be. Yeah. Especially back in those days, there were no computers or machines. Right? So she said, it's a jingle. I said, oh, okay, yeah, 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 sure, I can do that. Ten o'clock Tuesday morning. Okay, so I show up at the studio and. Uh, and I do it, and it's a total disaster because I'm in way over my head. Yeah, like I just went from, you know, playing with a bunch of really good friends who are really nice guys, who didn't have any more experience than I did, though. Yeah, and we were all, you know, like not schooled and not didn't have any structure to what we did. Really, didn't we were just grasping at straws, right, and and you know, flailing away, and walked into a room full of guys who were. He had been doing it for anywhere from 10 to 20 to 25, 30 years already. Yeah. And were veterans and were like the best musicians in the world, as good as anybody on the planet. Guys like Mo Kaufman, Guido Basso, uh-huh. you know, Eugene Amaro, Laurie Bauer, and, 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 you know, Tom Sesnack and Doug Riley and Eric Robertson and then Brian Barlow. The list goes on and on and on, yeah. right? These guys are all geniuses. They all grew up uh, studying music. They're all schooled. They're all... They, they've all been doing the studio thing for years. They're all experienced. Yeah. They're fast. They're brilliant. And they're, you know, like everything they play is amazing. And I'm like a two-year-old, yeah. you know, because I couldn't read music. That was the big problem, the biggest problem. But the other thing is I, I was still like I, you know, I think these guys are all geniuses, right? So did you realize that before you came in but or no. once you got in there, it was like, holy crap. <laughs> when I walked in, it was like, holy crap. Yeah. Oh, no. What, what have I got myself into here? Yeah. And, you know, but then I, I, I found, uh, then, then, you know, I thought, I walked away from that thinking, well, that'll never happen again, you know. And a week later, I got a call from the same lady. Uh, her name is Bev Crompton, saying, "Mike, it's Bev Crompton again." I said, "Yeah, can you do a gig uh, for for Ben this Thursday? Uh, you know, at two o'clock." And I said, "I said to her, um, uh, he knows I can't read music, right?" And she doesn't he? And she said, "Oh yeah, trust me, he knows." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Okay, okay," because like the, the thing was back then, you were never it, nobody ever gave you a chord chart and said just make something up. Yeah, it was all written out. It was all written out, right? It, like even the rhythm parts were written out. Oh yeah. This is the rhythm I want you to play, and it has to be that way because it's going with the percussion, and something else is up there, or you're playing this melody, and it's with the strings or the you know yeah. with the violins or or the, or the cellos or or whatever the heck it is, and those guys aren't going to screw it up yeah they're going to be perfect so when you mess it up you're going to look like an idiot right and so you know i, I said well if he wants me i'll go to it so I, I found out uh very quickly that that ben mcpeak was one of those guys who uh, had given a lot of people a chance oh, yeah. if he if he saw you and heard you play and thought you had something going on maybe yeah. he would give you a chance for a while oh yeah but you know, I've also figured out really quickly that it wasn't going to be for a long while. Yeah. You know, unless he saw a lot of improvement real fast. Yeah. 
and and all the other people around me too like i realize like in, unless i start unless i figure out how to catch up how to try and catch up with these guys i'm going to be going real fast yeah and uh, i had a you know a couple real good kicks in the in the behind uh from a few of the, the uh, veterans who took me aside and said look you know like you need to learn you learn to read music you need to do this you need to do that da, 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 da. and uh, yeah yeah okay okay I, I know but i don't know how to do it <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I had one guy say, "Okay, here's the deal." And he, you know, a guy named Jack Zaza, who was like the godfather of studio musicians in Toronto, and he could play about 15 instruments. Uh-huh. And, you know, all amazing, like everything from the spoons to the uh, oboe and the saxophone, and you know, and yeah. violin and accordion and you name it. I can't think of anything that he couldn't play. Yeah. So you know, he was the uh, the bass player, the electric bass player for you know a few years when the electric bass first came along in the studio. So I mean, he just did everything. He took me aside at one of Ben's sessions. He said, "Hey, kid, come on outside. I want to talk to you." I said, "Yeah, okay." And uh, he says, "Look, uh, do you want to do this for a living?" I said, "Yes, sir, Mr. Sazza." You know, like <laughs> and he said, "Well, you got to learn to at least read eighth notes. You know, if you're and you got to learn to keep up." And I said, "Yeah, I know, I know, but I don't know how." He said, "Okay, well, you got a metronome?" I said, "Yes, sir, I do." He said, okay. He, he said, go get a piece of paper and a pencil. So I ran back inside and got a piece of paper and a pencil. He, he wrote down, he said, he, you know, he, this is a trumpet book and this is a clarinet book. And sit, they're all exercises. They're written in the same register as the guitar. Yeah. So it's perfect for you. He said, but they're all exercises, so you, it's impossible to memorize them because there's just millions of exercises. And sit down with a metronome and learn to play, to play your way through these books. And so that I did that, and at the same time, I, uh, I talked through talking to another friend I had met in Toronto when I f- first moved there, who was uh, a uh, uh, who repaired guitars for a living, but he was also a guitar, good guitar player himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I I got the name of a of a teacher who had been one of the original uh, studio guys in Toronto in the uh, 40s and the 50s and the 60s, right? Yeah, yeah. And he had just retired a few years before that. And he was, he was uh, he had, he's taught everybody, like from, you know, Dominic Triano and Kim Mitchell and like anybody, uh, just about anybody you can name. Yeah. This, this guy, his name was Tony Braden. He, he gave lessons to them. And he, he said, so this friend of mine said, call Tony Braden. And, uh, so I, and I had these books in the metronome and I started working at that. And I called Tony and I said, look, you know, I, I said, I, I know you have a process and a system and all that kind of stuff. I'm sure you do. I said, but here's what's happening. I'm getting calls from these guys, like Ben McPeak and Doug Riley and Eric Roberts and these guys. And I can't read music. And I desperately need to learn as fast as I can. Like yesterday, I need to learn to read music yeah. or, or else I'm going to be gone, you know, unless I get it together really fast. And he said, he said, that's okay. You know, like he was like Santa Claus. He was in his 60s at the time and he was a sweetheart. And he, you know, I was just a young punk. But he said, yeah, come on down to my, he said, well, can you come next Tuesday or something, whatever it was, you know, I'll say Tuesday morning. I said, sure. He said, come down and uh, we'll sit down and figure out how to help you. And so I said, okay. So I went and uh, it was, we sat and he said, let's just play. So he played a little bit and he said, well, you can play. You got, you know, you got the natural skills. But he said, um, he said, let me ask you a question. He said, play me a, play me a C sharp on the, on the high E string. And I went, um, oh, she's uh, counted up. There it is. He said, okay, play us, play us a D flat on the, on the B string. 
which is the same note as a C sharp, as you know. Mm. And I, I went, oh, geez, oh, okay, D flat, C sharp, C oh. oh, there it is, yeah, okay. Play, he said, okay, play a C sharp on the G string. And I went, oh, God, I'm to look for it. So he said, okay, that's enough. He said, the problem you got, the biggest problem you got, is you don't know where the notes are on the neck. Mm-hmm. And how can you read music if you don't know where the notes are, are on the instrument? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly right. right? Yeah. He identified the problem immediately. And uh, he said, so here's, here's the deal. I can help you. I can, and I, I know how to get you started and give you a real, a, a real like, quick learner's course, you know, like a, a real head start here and get you moving quick if, if you want to. And I said, I'll do anything. He said, okay, here's what you got to do. And he showed me how to do it. And he said, you, you've got to learn where everything is on the neck of the, of the guitar. And then you've got to be able to apply that to the page. And so uh, he gave me a bunch of exercises and showed me how to play scales in ways that I had never, uh, I never played scales. So that was when I, I developed the, I fell in love with playing scales basically because of him. Yeah. And... Uh, uh, he taught me. He gave me a bunch of exercises and a bunch of a bunch of different ways of playing scales and looking at scales and and looking at the neck of the guitar, and and a bunch of drills, things that would basically beat it into my brain where all the notes were on the neck. And uh, so I I uh, I just I literally uh, my wife who you know Debbie she uh, she got up early and went to work every day. She was up at six and gone at six thirty. She used to put a I was playing bars at night still and i uh, i used to she'd put all on a, a pot of coffee and i would sit all day and drink coffee and play scales and play these exercises in these the clarinet and the trom- and the trumpet books yeah. and with a metronome and just work and work and work and work and uh what happened was it was it was you know again the next thing that happened to me was everybody in town all the all the writers all the, the the guys that were busy and were the big shots all hired me once. Oh yeah, once. Yeah, not again, not twice. Once, once. and I got the message really clear. It was like the the sort of uh, the understanding in the industry was well, if Ben's hiring, he 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 must know what he's doing. Yeah, but I found out later that Ben was the kind of guy that was the, not the kind of guy. He was a, a guy that uh, that was very gracious, and he had mentored a lot of other musicians. And singers too, and gave them chances. And uh, so these guys didn't know that I couldn't read. And yeah. as soon as I did the session, they found out right away. Oh, he couldn't, can't keep up. There's no time for a guy that can't keep up, right? Yeah. And so that again beat it into my head even more that I got to learn to do this. So what would, what happened was a couple months would go by, and I would do the odd thing here and there for Ben. And then one of those guys that I worked for once would be desperate because all the other you know good guys that were on their list were busy. And they'd, somebody say, "Well, I guess we got to hire that idiot, Francis. You know, I guess he's the only guy left. Right? You, know, you know, the only guy that hasn't drowned or whatever. So, you know, pull him on the boat and let's get him to. You know, we'll get him to play guitar. And I'd I'd go in, and I'd been working and working and working. And they were, um, all of them were nice enough uh, that after the session, like they they'd say, "Hey, man, you're better than you were last time. Like you've you've improved." And I, uh, I told them, all, I said, "I'm killing myself trying." They said, "Well, keep it up." Because you, you you've already improved yeah. since we saw you a couple months ago, and then a couple months later, they somebody'd be in a bind, and I'd get that call, and they'd say, "Hey, man, you're getting a little better." And I'd say, "Well, I'm like I'm killing myself, literally. <laughs> I was, I'm desperate." And I was taking the lessons with Tony Braden, and uh, I only what happened was I, I only took lessons from him for about six months, yeah. and in that by the end of that six months, 
I couldn't really read great, but I could read enough. And I started getting busy enough that I didn't have time to take lessons anymore. So oh. I never, that was the only time I took lessons in my life. And it was just specifically teach me how to, how to read, read to, yeah. how to learn to read music, how to figure this out, right? Yeah. It was like, because to me, it was like reading the Chinese newspaper, you know, yeah. it's like it was impossible, right? Um, and really hard when you're 23, turning 24, and you, you already have been playing in bar bands for a long time, and you feel like, well, I can play, but... But you can't. I mean, you're you're still fooling yourself. You can't. Yeah. You can't play nothing. I didn't know anything at the time because, you know, like I was so far out of my element. It was, you know, I, I wasn't hanging on. Uh, you know, I wasn't looking over the cliff. I was hanging off of the cliff. You know, yeah, just barely hanging on. You know, on these sessions because these guys were so much so far ahead of me. So that's how it all got started for me. Like the whole uh, uh, my ritual of of you know playing scales i played for a couple hours before you got here today i played scales uh -huh. that's what i do that yeah. you know and i've learned the value of it and I've, I've, i like there's a bunch of reasons why it's very valuable guys uh, some a lot of people don't understand it um but the people that do and that do it it, it makes a big difference in your playing and they know why you know and they, they yeah. know you know the, the the other benefits there's a lot of benefits that you don't see on the surface put it that way and uh Anyway, so that's what started that whole process. And then just the fact, like, I've always, I got into the ritual of practicing even more. Yeah, then you're already practicing a lot. Than I already yeah, was. Yeah. because. But I had so much to learn. Like, the, the thing was, when I stepped into that world, it was like going from a, a, a paddle boat you know, in in uh, in the in the middle of a, in a canoe or something or whatever, in in the, in the middle of a, of a little creek, to to uh, somebody plunking you down in, in the middle of NASA, saying, "Okay, now you're going to run the operations that, that get the rocket to the moon." Yeah, you know, like you're in charge of getting this sucker up to the moon, right? <laughs> yeah, like that. That's what it was like. It was that that much of a jump, and I, I was you know so far out of my element. It was unbelievable, and I realized how good these guys all were, and they were because they were schooled. Yeah. And I wasn't, so I, I had so much catching up to do, so that I just, I, I just got into the ritual or the routine of beating myself up, trying to just trying to catch up to these guys, and keep up with them, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, how long do you think it took before you felt like you were pretty comfortable? I still in, don't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I still think I suck. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> uh, that that old friend that I told you that that was the steel player in my dad's band. He, uh, I hadn't seen I haven't seen him for you know about I don't know. We've stayed in touch a little bit, but I hadn't seen him for Jesus fifteen years. And I saw him last summer, and uh, and so now we've been in contact more and uh, than, than we had previously. And. And he sent me an email a while ago, and he said, "So, so I, you know, he's all he's interested in, in because a lot of people are always interested in, like you said, I've, I've been lucky. I've had a, an, a, a really, I've been lucky. I've, I've had a, a very nice career." Yeah. And um, he says, "I'd love to hear some of the stuff you've played on." Like he's, you know, he said, "Can you send me some some of the stuff you've played on?" And I said, "You know something, man, I I never listen to the stuff I've played on, and I'm not sure I like it that much." <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not, like I really don't I don't you know like I don't think that much of anything that I've ever done like there's a lot of guys that are so much better than me that I don't really feel like I've you know uh, that I've ever arrived but it, to, to be in a, to answer you seriously um, it took me a year from the time I started trying to learn to read to to be comfortable at it yeah. to to be like competent 
put yeah. it that way, just just confident. And that's not like the guys that like the violin players or even the the piano players and the, all the all the guys who just they, somebody put a chart in front of them and they don't even look at it. They just pick up their instrument and start playing it. Yeah, like they don't even think about it. Yeah, it's just automatic for them, right? And it. So I was still struggling, but I could struggle in a competent way. Yeah. And then it took me another year. So I was two years before I felt like I could walk into anything and not be terrified. Yeah. Because I was, for the first six months or a year, I was terrified. Like I used to, I used to go to the studio every gig at least an hour early, hoping that the music would be there. Oh yeah, so you could run over it. So I could look at it and, and figure out, what is that? What because like those guys, they they look at a rhythmic figure, you know, da 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 ba 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 you know, and they it just comes out of them. Yeah. They look at it and they just spit it out, and then you know they look at a melodic figure, whatever the heck it is, all over the place, and they just spit it out, right? Yeah. And I sit there going, ah, that's a no, that's a B, you know, trying to find what what note is that and what's the rhythm of it and what's the you know, what's it supposed to sound like? And uh, it was terrifying. Yeah, it's, I can imagine. I, I mean, well, yeah. maybe I can't imagine, but, um, but obviously they saw something in you that they, well, they, you know, which was great. I mean, I think we talked about this earlier, just being able to judge whether you know someone has something more in them or not, right? Yeah. And, uh, Obviously, they saw that the potential was certainly, you know, it so, just needs a little. Somebody did. A lot yeah. of guys were really kind to me uh, as well. And then the other thing is, like, as I always say to people, I don't know if they liked me or felt sorry for me. But, yeah. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, a, a lot of guys, a lot of other, other musicians put it that way, um, um, were really kind and really uh, generous to me yeah. and helped me, like, you know, uh, I can't tell you how many times, uh, you know, guys have come over to me in the middle of a, came over came over to me in the middle of a session, and whispered in my ear and said, "Hey, all that is is just that's all it is. Mm-hmm. Don't worry about it." You know, or you know, in one case, a piano player came over and he heard me struggling, and we had the same same part we were playing. And there was like a bar and a half where it was really complicated. I'm struggling with it. It was a jingle. And they go by really quickly, a jingle does, because yeah. you only got an hour. And you got three tracks to record, and you got, you're, you got to get in and out. And uh, he, the piano player came over to me, and he says, take off your phones. And I said, okay, I took off my phones. He whispers in my ear. He says, I've got these two bars covered. You don't have to play there. They won't even, they won't even notice that you're not playing. So just don't play, okay? I said, okay. He says, play, play before that and after it. Just don't play those two bars. I said, okay. Mm-hmm. And we did it the next time, ran it down, uh, and we recorded it. And it was like, perfect, guys, that was a take, great. And I looked over at him and said, thank you. (laughs) Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And he said, yeah, 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 don't worry about it. He became one of my best friends and one of the guys that hired me for more gigs than I can count. Uh, He was a writer too, but uh, Eric Robertson is his name, sweetheart of a guy. But uh, anyway, it was just, yeah, it was a lot of stress and a lot of pressure, but at the same time, I didn't have any other options because I didn't have an education, period. You know, I didn't finish high school. So it's, you know, it's... It's kind of do or die. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's pump and gas or, or, you, or it's walking in, to, like, for me, because I didn't even know that world existed. Yeah. You know, like, backing up a little bit. Like, to me, it was wa- like walking into a, 
uh, a dream, like a fairy tale, yeah. or Disney World or something. It was, it was like that. Like you're working with the best musicians, the best writers, uh, the best recording engineers in the best recording studios in Canada, which are as good as anywhere in the world. Yeah. All these people and the best producers, right? And so you're like everything is incredible, and it was just an absolute. I was just stunned first of all, and in shock. And then once I got over being in shock, I realized how great it was. And I wanted that. I looked at that and said, you know, I looked at all these guys and said, I want that. I want to be one of those guys. Yeah. You know, like, that's what I want. I've, you know, like, that's when I realized that's what I want to be. And that's when I also, you know, cause I never really liked playing uh, bars that much. I didn't like playing live. Yeah. And I, and I'm the most boring person in the world to watch. I'm not a performer. I'm terrible at, you know, just absolutely horrible at that. It's, a, it's about the instrument to me and about playing yeah. and about what you hear, not what you see, right? Yeah. And so the recording studio is the perfect world for that because it's about what you hear, not what you see. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and, and it's magnified times a thousand because everything you play, everybody else in the room is going to hear again. Yeah. You know, three or four times until everybody's, you know, satisfied that it's right. And so it better, be, what you play better be right like everybody else is, right? So explain to me and, you know, people listening what those sessions were actually like back then. Because probably, obviously, different than recording now. It was really, a, you know, you were turning out lots of stuff. I mean, it was... Yeah. And so it was basically, everything was in blocks, right? Time-wise, in, in the studio, you'd have a... How, how did that all work? Uh, well, you you know, it, it depends on on uh, the type of gig it was, right? Yeah. Like a jingle is, is an hour. That's it. You know, you, I, so you better be able to get it together quick. No matter no matter how hard the music is, you better yeah. be able to get it, get it together right now. Because, and as I said, we have three versions to record. You know, um, a 60, a 30, and then sometimes an, a, um, a second version of uh, a just-in-case version, you know. Yeah, it's not because like, it's like, Pearl Tools now you just chop up a 30 second version or whatever and no. you have to make sure you you cover all your bases yeah no this is live to tape so this yeah. is like the, sometimes they'd record a backup version in case right uh, like a different track a different a yeah. different piece of music so so, you, so that's like, an hour and then would how many people would be involved in that? That'd be with singers and everything, or it would be just musicians and singing after? Mostly, the singers always were after, and the voiceover no. was after. But the jingles were always, um, you know, it's the the first five years at least, maybe even the first ten years. But the first five years at least that I did those sessions with those people in that world, it was uh, I'd say seven out of ten sessions I did uh, were there were fifty sixty musicians on them. Wow. Uh, the other three would be, would be a rhythm section with a, a, a couple horns or, or, you know, just a rhythm section. If it was a, a folk or a country thing or a rock and roll thing or something like that, you know. Yeah. But, but, you know, without synthesizers and computers and all that, to get a big sound, you had to have a lot of people. Yeah. Right? And, and if you wanted orchestral instruments, I mean, you don't get one violin, you get 15. And you get, you know, 10 or 12 uh, violas and, and five, six cellos. You know, and that's just the strings, right? And then you got the yeah. horns, and then you got the rhythm section guys, and the percussionists, and this and that and that. And, you know, so it, it was, you know, so you'd go from, you know, a typical day would be doing a, one jingle or two jingles, uh, which were an hour each, and then in between that was a, a three-hour uh, call for a TV show, you know, like uh, the background music on a TV show, yeah. or uh, or a film, yeah. there, which are in three-hour chunks. 
So you might do a, a double session, like you know, like lots of times I would do a nine o'clock jingle, and, and uh, then run from that studio to the next studio, and it would be ten to one and two to five of uh, two three hour chunks of a session for a, a, a film or the background music for a TV show like Street Legal, or uh, or the pre-record for the Tommy Hunter show, yeah. or Fraggle Rock, which mm-hmm. I did, you know, or something like that, or you know Sesame Street, one of those things, and then at night. Uh, because the the big money or the the bread and butter money was made during the day, so everybody did uh, albums and records at night. So then right. you at night you'd go you'd go somewhere for dinner. Then you you'd go do a record, which would be anywhere from a, a, a three to a six hour call. So you're working from like seven to ten or seven till one a.m. Wow! And then you go home, you sleep for six hours, you get up, you get, get your butt in the car, and you get back downtown for the nine o'clock jingle. You know, and that starts the day again. And so you're, you know, you're running from this studio at, at nine o'clock. You're done, you know, and you're, you're asking the guy, you know, for a favor. Like once I got really rolling, you're asking, you know, you're saying, look, my, actually what happened was uh, my wife uh, became my business manager. Oh, good. And she, she had a really good job, but uh, um, through uh, talking to our accountant, we found that uh, we were better off if she stayed home and helped me yeah. help my career and she was more than willing to do that and happy to do that and then she's the athlete as I told you in the family so mm-hmm. we were talking about this earlier she's she's the uh, uh, you know um, it, if I could have been an athlete I would want I'd want to be my wife because she can pick up anything and, and play yeah. immediately like a ball and a racket and a ball and a bat and a glove and whatever she, she's great she's good to go yeah yeah she's she's just she's a natural I'm the opposite uh, it's all going on in my head and it's it's music it's not anything you know it's not anything athletic for sure so anyway she stayed home and uh, um, because she was home um, you got to understand like these these people that book uh, especially when they're booking 50, 60 musicians, right? Yeah. For a, a recording session. And at first it was, the, the first year or so it was like, can you, it's, it's Friday, you'd get a call, can you do something next Tuesday or Wednesday? And then it was, it's Friday, can you, it, it, it's Monday morning, we need you. Oh, yeah. And then it was, it's Thursday afternoon, we need you for tomorrow morning. Oh, yeah. and, then, and then it got to be, it's Friday morning, we need you for this afternoon. Yeah. You know, so it got less and less, you know, uh, time, uh, less and less lead time, basically. And what what happens is when these people are booking that many musicians and they have to do it, you know, they're on the phone all day booking booking people for different gigs, these yeah. contractors. Um, they don't want to, like, say, if it's 4.30 and they're done at 5 o'clock, they want to be done at 5 o'clock and go home. Yeah. They don't want to be looking for guitar players still at 8 o'clock at night. They want to, you know, so my wife would be home Um not sitting by the phone, but she would just happen to be there or they'd know if they left a message, she would pick it up with, within a half hour. Yeah. Always, right? Because she was always close enough to home so she would pop in and, and pick up messages and, and they got to also uh, know that the, her and I are a really good team and if she said, he'll be there for nine o'clock tomorrow morning, I would be there with, you know, with bells on, with, with whatever instruments they told me to bring and, yeah. and I'm ready and ready to go, right? So they trusted her, they trusted me and so my, I, I ended up with more work when she started helping yeah. me, right? Because no, no cell phones or Again, texting or nothing. no way to kind of, you know, be at a session and grab your phone. Yeah, I can make two o'clock. You'd have to wait until you got home. Yeah. And it, you'd miss that call. one in the morning and you'd miss the call. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, I used to get calls. This is ridiculous, but I used to get calls like some of the guys 
the, that uh, did, the, did studio work also played jazz at the, in the jazz clubs in Toronto at night, and yeah. they, they'd be doing a gig from 9 till 1 a.m., and then they'd be writing the jingle for the, they'd be writing the 9 o'clock jingle at 3 a.m. Oh, yeah. And I'd get a phone call from from their contractor. Uh, you know, this was like particularly a guy named Doug Riley, who's a sweet, sweet guy. Uh, unfortunately, he's not with us anymore, but a sweet man. But that was his his approach. His mo- that was his the way he did it. And it, I'd get the phone would ring at three a.m., and uh, one of us would pick it up, Debbie or I, and and say, "Hi, it's it's oh, hey man, it's Slide," which was Doug, Slide. Mm-hmm. They called him Slide because he was a trombone player. Right. Uh, so it's Slide, man. Uh, can uh, can Mike do a jingle with 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 Doc tomorrow morning at nine o'clock at Manta? Yeah, yeah, he can do it. Yeah, okay, you know, okay, great, gotcha. See you later. You know, and, and that's all he wanted. He wanted, you know, he needed to get a band, and, and it was three in the morning. Yeah, you know, and he was going to get the first guy that he. I mean, again, the first guy that answered the phone was going to get that gig. He, he, some people would say, "I want this guy." You know, I want Mike Francis or I want so-and-so or so-and-so or so-and-so, you know, and that's it. Yeah. Uh, so if we can't get that guy, we'll move the session, you know, because that's eventually, you know, uh, people, um, because of circumstances, because of loyalty and because of uh, not, not just loyalty, but just because of familiarity and because of getting the work done. Yeah. Because there's a lot of pressure and, again, a lot of stress, as I said. So, like, the, you know, the, the producer and the writer they get used to working with a certain person, they want to keep working with that person because because they get what they want out of him. Yeah. And right? uh, whatever instrument he plays, and, or the, him or her. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, they want that person, and that's the way it is. So they would move sessions around. But also my, my wife uh, found out, you know, got in the habit of saying, look, he can do the 9 o'clock jingle, but he, you know, at Manta, but he's got to be... Um, at McClear Place or at Sounds Interchange or whatever, Eastern, for, for 10 o'clock. Cause, uh, can you let him out 10 minutes early? And they say, yeah, 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 we'll be done 10 minutes early. Don't worry about it. And uh, and the 10 o'clock session never started on time anyway. Yeah. So it was always started at 10 after, quarter after, especially when there's 50, 60 musicians. It's like it doesn't ha- start exactly at 10 o'clock. It starts as yeah. close as they can, but, you know, you got a few so, minutes to... Yeah, a few minutes to spare. To spare. To, you know, so I could run and literally run, you know, scream up and down the... You know, Spadina Ave in, in Toronto to get from one studio to another. The uh, yeah, the studios must have been just always set up and ready to go, right? They it was must, it they was just, humming. Yeah, it was humming. It was like a beehive. Yeah, and I mean they they weren't set up and ready to go, but everything was there and yeah. ready, no matter what you needed, if you needed it, and you know, like it was a it was a different world. I mean, now the whole world has changed, and uh, and it's it's not uh, it. There's no right or wrong, mm-hmm. but uh, in my, you know, for the sake of, of the guitar player, put it this way, or the drummer or, or whatever, uh, back in those days, it was better for us because, I mean, first of all, this, all the studios had their own parking lots oh, yeah. for the musicians, yeah. not for the clients. This is for the musicians, yeah. you know, so, so you guys go park somewhere else and this is, you know, this is about making music yeah. and these guys get first preference. And then, you know, there'd be an assistant at at Manta or at Sounds Interchange or wherever, you know, when I pulled up by the door, said, "Hey, man, how you doing? What's what? Who are you working with?" Because there's like three studios in the, in the building. Yeah. I said, "I'm working with Eric." Okay, okay, you're in in two. Here, give me give me your couple of guitars and uh, you grab your amp. Let's go. And they'd be there helping you carry your gear in. And uh, you know, it's it's stuff like that. I mean, so, yeah. you know, it, it was 
pretty sweet deal. Oh yeah. You know, pretty, pretty nice world. And you know, anything you needed was there for you. Yeah. You know, like those guys were there to help you, the assistants, they were, they were parking your car for you because they knew you didn't have time to do it yourself. Yeah. You know, and, and then dropping the keys by on the way by, you know, and, and I mean, anything, any piece of gear you needed was there. Um, and you know, it just, yeah. And then they, they set, I mean, they would set sessions up, you know, for 50, 60 musicians, you can't do it. At, you know, if the session's at 10, they started at seven in the morning or whatever. Yeah. Setting that session up. And when that session was done, they started two or three hours before the next one. Right. If they, or they had to have two or three hours. They, they needed a two hour turnover. Yeah. You know, if it was going to be another big session. That's a big setup for that yeah. many people. Yeah. yeah. It's a lot of mics and a lot of complications, a lot of things to, a lot, a lot of bugs to want, you know, to iron right. out. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, would, I guess Toronto really was the hotbed for that, right? And, you know, Toronto, probably LA and New York, really? or Yeah, Toronto, LA, New York, uh, Nashville, and Chicago. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're different environments yeah. in each city. And, well, in Detroit, you know, had the, Motown had their own run, obviously, too. And, and there was a big scene in Philadelphia for, uh, for 10 or 15 years, you know. And then there's the other offshoots uh, for in the 60s and 70s, like Muscle Shoals. And in Memphis, uh, Stacks Volt. Yeah. Uh, so there's all those, but you know, in those cases, there are all different environments. Like uh, um, the the two that were similar in my mind, uh, because I've you know we've all seen all those DVDs that have been out, like yeah. uh, Standing in the Shadows of Motown and uh, about the whole Motown scene and the musicians and the 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 artists, the singers, songwriters, and all the great music and and then there's you know the wrecking crew which is uh, about yeah. the la scene and uh you know there, there's one about muscle shoals one about stacks and and uh um the thing is that i guess new york la and toronto would have been similar in in the fact that you had to to work steady to work all the time yeah you had to be all basically with which is, it's an impossible thing but you had to try to be all things to all people in other words you, you couldn't just uh, play acoustic guitar, yeah. you know, or, uh, you, you, you know, you had, any, or you couldn't just play one style of music, you know, you, you had to play, a, you know, any style that they threw in front of you yeah. if you wanted to work all the time. If you wanted to work once a month, yeah, you could say, this is all I do. And they'd say, or, you know, once a week or whatever. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's fine. But you're only going to work once a week. So if you need to, you know, from seeing those DVDs, that was my point. I, I saw like the Wrecking Crew one. It was the same as the world I lived in. Yeah. You know, they did everything. They did jingles and TV shows and films and records. And, you know, they were working with more famous people than I was, that I, you know, at, at the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, they were working with Frank Sinatra and, uh, and, and, you know, whatever. I mean, and, you know, the Beach Boys and whatever. And, uh, and, and up here, we worked with uh, with our own, you know, uh, kind of set of stars too, you know, like the Alanis Morissettes and, you know, all those kind of people too. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, anybody, you know, Tommy Hunter and whoever else, ever else you can name and think of, right? But I mean, and anything in between. But uh, but we also we you had to be able to read music, whereas in Nashville that wasn't you know important. Like if you could play the right style, yeah. And and you know everybody in Nashville can play their ass off. I mean, there's no question. They're all great, and, but they're playing. It's a country music town. Yeah. And that's that's what it is, and that that's fine because that was my background. But that's part of what got me in 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 Toronto was in 1975, backing up about 20 minutes or half an hour. Uh, there was a movie called Urban Cowboy mm-hmm. uh, with John Travolta in it, and 
and it had steel guitar and a lot of a lot of country music in it. And all of a sudden, we they said we need a steel guitar player and we need a, a guy that can play guitar like that. Those guys in that movie, and that that just happened to be me, and I just happened to be in the right place at the right time oh, yeah. in Toronto. So again, just good luck, not good management. I just happened yeah. to be there, and then. They, you know, they started phoning me and saying, can you play a uh, bossa nova thing? Yeah, I can do that. I know what that is. Okay. Can you play rock and roll? Yeah, I played with Ronnie Hawkins. I can play rock and roll. Oh, okay. And then, I, you know, I, yeah. the, the thing I realized quick, too, was uh, that I couldn't just get away with, you know, I needed to learn music or learn to read music desperately. <laughs> I needed to learn more about music desperately, uh, about harmony and, and about, you know, how to put things together, but I also needed to learn how to play like, you know, a bunch of other guitar players. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it, you know, if somebody says, I, I want a solo like Clapton, you better be able to play like Clapton. You know, if somebody says, I want a solo like Van Halen or, you know, uh, or I want you to pick up an acoustic and play like James Taylor, you better be able to pick up an acoustic. Yeah. Play like James Taylor. You know, so, I mean, that was easy for me because I had started by playing the acoustic guitar. Yeah. by playing fingerstyle. So that was easy, kind of relatively for me, Yeah. as long as it wasn't written out, as long as they just said, here's the chords, just do what you... And they didn't know much about that music. So that when it was that kind of situation, that's when it was a lot easier for me because they'd say, well, you know about this stuff. We don't really know what this, you know, what the guitar does in this kind of music. So just, just do your thing. Yeah. And that was great. But the rest of the time it was like, no, you're doubling the flutes and the uh, or the saxophones. You better nail it. You know? Yeah. So I was like, oh yeah, okay, thanks. <laughs> so, how long did that? I mean, obviously that was a kind of powerhouse time in Toronto, and and that stuff was going on pretty st steady. But it kind of started to fade away at, at some point. Yeah. Um, yeah. It always it always does. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it well, it changed in in, the, in many. You know, like if I feel like I've lived about four different lifetimes. Yeah. So sometimes that's the way I, it feels to me, but like the it changed around me, but it didn't change my world. Like it's uh, you know when the synthesizers and the drum machines and then the computers came along, the Mac first. The you know the, yeah. the, the um, what was the first Mac that everybody used? Mac Classic. Yeah, yeah, the little one. Yeah, mm -hmm. and I I even had one. I couldn't just couldn't think of what it was, but um, uh, that started to change like for the first thing to go were the uh were the string sections because they could the, the emulator arrived yeah and then synclavier and uh, and you know the the other machines like that and so they could duplicate the strings yeah and and they could, or they could just get a few violins to play on top of of the program stuff and it sounded legit yeah um but they still needed a drummer and a guitar player and a bass player and a keyboard player and a sax player to play a solo and stuff like that you know and a horn section because they couldn't do that yet. And then it changed, so they, you know, uh, uh, music started to change, but not only that, uh, um, the, the, you know, the technology got better and they were, uh, you know, they were able to duplicate some horns and, and some section orchestral kind of stuff. And, uh, and then the next thing was, you know, it became harder for drummers because they had drum machines. Yeah. People are using drum machines. And then they got the synths, then they're using synth bass. Yeah. As opposed to bass players, which, um, you know, it's it all it all has a place, right? Yeah. Uh, the the luckily for me, the the guitar is one of the hardest things for them because like a, a piano is really easy for them. Yeah. Because it's just you're playing you know a piano part on a on a, on an electric keyboard. Yeah. And once the samples got good enough, the sampling rates got better, then they could 
pretty, they could get pretty close to sounding like a real piano. Yeah. And now the, I think they can actually, right? I mean, you, you, you're on the technical end of it. You know, yeah, it's still never quite the same, but it's pretty darn close. Yeah, it's, it's kind yeah. of good enough, right? And, but it, it's there's a thing about feeling the air around it, yeah. and hearing the air around it, and it, that you don't get from a, um, an electronic keyboard. But uh, anyway, the guitar is a lot trickier than that, mm-hmm. and so my career lasted a lot longer than a lot of those other guys. But a lot of those other guys had been around already for twenty years. Oh yeah. So yeah. for 10, 20 years. So, you know, I, I, um, some of those guys have been around since the late 40s and early 50s, right? Yeah. And then I, you know, like Mo Kaufman and, and guys like that. So I stumbled into it in the mid-70s. And then uh, it, was, it was like, like I said, it was like that for the first five or 10 years. And it, it was still screaming. The, the volume of work was screaming. Uh, then the technology changed, but the, that all, all that meant was the circumstances were different. I was, yeah. you know, the, there weren't 50 people on the session. Now there were five or six. Yeah. Um, but the rhythm section was still really important, and the guitar part was important, and playing it the right way was important. And and, and then then it started. It evolved into um, being looser, which was much <laughs> much more pleasant for me. It, yeah. In the in the context of uh, here's just a chord chart, man. Oh yeah, you know, like uh, you'll hear the programming, you'll hear the stuff that we we programmed. We need a guitar part on, and we got a we we hired a, a real bass player and a drummer today, and uh, you know, and you know, got a couple horn players, and uh, yeah, so you're playing along with this pre-programmed stuff, and you know, we want we want it to sound like this, you know, yeah. whether it's it's uh, the Police at the time, like in the '80s, you know, Madonna, mm-hmm. the Police. You know, whatever, a Screedy Politi or something, you know, yeah. uh, something like that. We want it to sound like that. Okay, fine. Yeah, I know what that is. And so that, and I liked all that. Like, to me, the 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 other lucky thing again, I'm, I'm a lot of good luck. I keep saying it, but it's true. More good luck than good management. But uh, I I enjoy those challenges. Yeah. I've got some friends that are great musicians that hated that. Oh yeah. And so they didn't last through that, through those changes. But I, I loved the evolution of it all. Yeah. And I loved the different styles. And I loved, okay, so now it's this. Okay, fine. This is the thing now. Sure, I'll, I can figure out how to do that. Yeah. You know, and it, it was just, it was fun for me and I enjoyed it. So uh, um, it made it, you know, I liked that challenge. So it, it, I was kind of designed, I guess, but my brain is wired for that world. Yeah. You know, so. Well, it's because we're. Repetitive. I mean, it's just constant over and over and over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah. And, and it, but you know, it, it got to be where where the musicians started having more input. Yeah. Uh, because they'd say, "Here's a chord chart. Play something." But you know, they'd give you some direction, like play it in this style, and you know, th- this is the kind of sound, but or the, you know, the area we think it should be. Go ahead and play something. We'll see and see how it works. And if they didn't like it, they say change it. And I said, yeah, okay, good. I can I can do a you know a lot of other stuff. Check this out. Check this out. Check this out. You know. Yeah. And tell me which one you like. I don't. You know. I. It, that's the other thing. I is. I have no ego about it. And my the friends that I work with all the time are the same. They have no ego. It's just like, it, what I played doesn't. I didn't play it thinking that it was the most important thing in the world. Yeah. And, and I don't think I'm that important myself at all. So I'm just happy to be here. So I'll do whatever you want. Yeah. You know, and, and it's fun because I, I like taking direction or, or you know, getting that, uh, somebody's giving you, uh, I guess, some idea of what they want and then editing it as you go. Yeah. 
you know, until you fine tune it, until you get something that everybody likes. Yeah. You know, and, and that was a, a lot of fun for me. So uh, I was built for it. So they, you know, in the mid eighties, from the mid seventies to the, to the mid eighties, it was all the orchestral, a lot of orchestral sessions. And then the orchestral guys were gone. Then the machines kind of took over and, and that went up into the you know mid nineties. And then, you know, man, I, I worked steady for 30 years. So yeah. I worked up to like, Oh four and oh five, seven days a week. That's crazy. The last five years or so, it started to slow down. Yeah, and I could see that it was slowing down, and I knew that that, that it was inevitably going to happen anyway. Yeah, but the the industry just changed because now everything is done by one person. Yeah, you know, in in a room by himself. Yeah, and he, if there's guitar, he needs to, you know, he plays it himself. He plays enough guitar that, with the technology that's around, you can take all the time he needs to get a, a guitar part. You know, that exactly. he's happy with. So you cut and paste it and put it together. And so, and there's no budget to hire a guitar player anymore. Yeah. Um, especially for jingles and, and TV shows, right? That kind of work. That's all gone. On records, they, you know, uh, country records, not on uh, pop records. Mm -hmm. you know, like an, and, you know, anymore so much. I mean, it, it's, it, and they've, they've, um, they've managed to, to sample things uh, the sample rate's gotten good enough. The technology's gotten good enough that they they can sample an acoustic and an electric guitar just enough to get like a rhythm part. Yeah, you get a part in a pinch and yeah, and get by. Yeah. And, and it sort of works, right? Yeah, as you know. But uh, uh, but you know, if you want a, a solo that has personality, or uh, you know, uh, it, it sounds has musical musical construction. It sounds like it comes from an interesting place. You got to hire a player. Yeah, you know. Still, I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah, especially in the country world, it just you can't you can't reproduce that stuff. Um, it's it's way too hard. Even even drum machines. Uh, I mean, more modern country now. Yeah. Certainly, there's a lot of loops, and uh, but that's a particular type of sound. Um, and as we mentioned, we were talking earlier. A lot of that stuff. It's just there's nothing really super difficult going on. It's just a lot of it all yeah. at the same time. So, you know, you're not coming up with interesting drum parts that go with the piano, that go with the acoustic, go with the electric, or and the piano has its spot in there. It just sort of seems to be more of a, um, you know, here's kind of a, a, a drive, a drive that we want to create. Yeah. Um, and a, you just, you know, you put in drive and go. It's um, a drone. Yeah. <laughs> in the background. And there's nothing wrong with it. And it works and it's the way it is now. Uh, yeah, but it's just different than it was. Yeah, um, it's different than it was. I mean, they were looking for personality or or ideas. Yeah. And that, like that's, you know, a lot of the th the, reason, uh, the the jobs I get still get hired to do and, and that I still, uh, you know, the work that I still am blessed to have. Um, uh, it's because I've got a huge catalog of experience and a lot of ideas and a lot of you know a lot of crazy ideas some of them work some of them don't uh but i've you know uh i'm good at at coming up like you said earlier we were talking about you know coming up with, with an intro for a song that that suits the song that serves the you know because it's all about serving the song and the singer yeah if, if you're talking about doing records uh doing you know albums for people i mean it's it's all about serving the song and the singer and that's the only thing that matters uh, it's not about how great the, the guitar part is or how great the, the reverb is on the snare. Yeah, it has none. It doesn't matter if there's any reverb on the snare. You know, if the thing feels great and sounds great, and and the singer and the song are represented properly, that's all that matters. Yeah, you did your job then. 
right? Mm-hmm. And that's what you and I are called to do, right? Yeah. And that's, you know, and we, we have a lot in common. We think a lot the same way. That's why we've always uh, had a lot of fun working together. But uh, when did you, um, when did you, uh, you hear that noise? Yeah, I heard a little noise. something. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's my, it's a little, gle- oh yeah. It's, it's my a, cell phone next a, to it's the, a yeah. Phone. yeah. Um, when did you make the transition into doing more producing? Um, obviously there was a, they just kind of slowly start happening. Obviously you're doing a lot of sessions and meeting a lot of people and, um, but you ended up doing a lot of producing work as well. Yeah. It, it started, uh, because some producers that I worked for would hire me to, uh, write arrangements, to do arrangements like, uh, or just to write the charts, you yeah. know, for the, for this. And I, I add a few ideas. At first it started just, just write charts for these songs. And, and, and I said, sure. And so I would do what I was told and they'd give me, you know, a cassette back in those days. Yeah. And, uh, it was, just, you know, uh, and, and I, I had a lot of experience with doing a lot of different things because I did all those TV shows. I, you yeah. know, I, I did, I was the music director on the Ronnie Prophet show mm-hmm. for six years, which was a dream job for me, uh, which allowed, that's what allowed me to, uh, to not I have to go on the road yeah. to be able to stay home to, so that I, when the phone rang, I could go do those other sessions, right? Yeah. Because the, the, I had the, the Tommy Hunter show, the Ronnie Prophet show, and a, a show called Nashville Swing, a couple other live, live music shows, right? Yeah. And, um, and then I did a lot of, you know, a lot of the pre-records like, uh, for TV shows like Fraggle Rock and Sesame Street and, and all that stuff too. So, and, and TV series, many, a lot of those. So that, that allowed me to stop working in bars, stay at home and focus on the studio work. And, uh, um, you know, it, it all, it, it gave me doing like doing the Ronnie Prophet show and being the MD and having to write charts for all, uh, the different artists that were on the show, the, the band had to back up. You learn a lot about how things are put together yeah. when you're writing the charts for the band, right? You know, that's the, right, that's the, and you, you hear the same kind of bass part over and over and over because it works. That's why they play it. And here's the same kind of drum part. You hear the same kind of keyboard part or whatever. That's because it works. And you hear the, you know, the, uh, musical conversations going on between the um, you know between the keyboards and the guitars and 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 uh, the fiddle and the steel guitar and the you know whatever right and uh, so I learned a lot from those things so I, from from that people started asking me to write charts uh, producers to write charts for records they were producing then I started to add some ideas sneak in some ideas of my own and they said, oh, that's cool to keep doing that. And uh, so I kept doing that. Um, and then uh, one thing led to another. Finally, uh, a, a couple artists came to me uh, or their managers came to me personally. He said, look, would you produce a record for someone for so-and-so? Uh, you know, I said, sure. I was stupid enough to, you know, to say, sure, why not? I can do that. Yeah. 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 And uh, of course, didn't know what I was getting into. But uh, it was again in over my head. But it was something that came natural to me. Yeah. And, and luckily for me, my, I was strong enough in the music department from all the experience I had yeah. doing all those other shows and all those uh, working in all those other uh, worlds, you know, those other contexts uh, that uh, I was, you know, able to understand, okay, so this is, and actually from working with a lot of other good producers and, and writers, you see a lot of times, like after the first few years of my career, like I said, everything was written out for the first few, year, few years. But after yeah. that, it was w- what the old school producers back in the 50s used to do 
which was in L.A. And, and New York and Toronto and everywhere, and Nashville, which was hire the best musicians and let them play. Yeah. Get out of their way and let them play. And they're going to give you something really good because that's what they do, because they're proud of what they do, and they're not going to do a, 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 a mediocre job and leave you with a mess. They're going to do something. They're going to do the best they can for you, right? Yeah. And so if you get the music part together, the, the other part kind of takes care of itself, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I mean, a lot of funny things happened, you know, along the way, but there was, it was definitely a learning curve, but, uh, it still was okay because I would work with engineers that I was, that I was very close with friend, you know, good friends with. So I trusted them. Yeah. So I didn't need to know how to mic the drums and I didn't need to know how to, you know, to, to do any of that stuff. I just focused on the music. They recorded it, made it sound good. I said, there you go. There's your record. Are you happy? Yeah, good. You know, so... Yeah, and it just makes sense, right? Um, as a producer, you're going to have the best guitar player or the best drummer come in and play. Well, you're not really going to tell them how to play. No. Because he already plays way better than you would ever think of playing. Yeah. So what right do you have to tell them what to do? You may have a direction or an idea. That's right. Or, you know, we're going down this path, mm -hmm. but to let them do let them do what their they thing. do because they're that's what they're really good at yeah and that's why you hired them i mean mm -hmm. if if if, uh, if it's if like you being a coach of a hockey team exactly you're not going to go out and you're not going to be the the goaltender um just because you want to show them what to do unless you're as good as the guy that's yeah in that i mean it's yeah you can let them know what they're doing wrong or advise them but um just let the let the pros do it and just well, yeah, exactly. I mean, to Tony, Tom, sorry, Tommy Lasorda, uh, the great uh, uh, Dodgers uh, manager for, for a long, long time, uh, had a great line about baseball. He said, uh, there's three kinds of baseball players. Uh, there's, there's the f first kind that make, that make the play happen. Yeah. There's the second kind that watch the play happen. And then there's the third ones that are on the field that's, that look around and say, what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, I mean, you, you can't, you know, you can, you can only send the best guys out there that you have yeah. and hope they get the job done, but you can't go out in the field and do it for them. Yeah. They have to go out and do it, you know, and, and music is a team sport. Uh, no matter what anybody says, music is a team sport and there's nothing uh, more satisfying or, or more, there's, there's nothing richer uh, musically than having like five great musicians in a room that really know what they're doing that with lots of experience that know how to do their job great and you get f f five great personalities yeah all in one package right then the music is five times better yeah because you know you can also hear the stuff a lot of stuff uh, that's that's done by one person and it sounds like it's done by one person it's one person's idea yeah you know, the, the drum part, the bass part, the guitar part, the keyboard part, the whole thing, it's one person's idea. And he's, that same person is also engineering, yeah. you know, and producing and doing everything and, and getting the coffee, you know, and whatever. I mean, it's just, it, it's so much richer when there's more people with more ideas because it's, you, you got, you know, it's, the water's deeper and it's, it's more satisfying, right? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, I learned really, really hard, uh, or uh, not the hard way, I didn't, I just, I learned really fast uh, in, when I started first couple of records that I started uh, producing. And the, what I did was I, I hired the right guys. I hired a couple of my best friends who are monster players, um, a drummer named Barry Keane and, and a uh, bass player named Tom Sesniak, who I, I love both of them and they're just, they're just the greatest. And 
I remember th- I had worked because I had done a lot of jingles and a lot of TV work. I was used to seeing uh, some writers who would literally write out not only a drum part, but a drum, like the drum fills yeah. that they want. They would lift a drum fill from a, a Toto record or something and, and write it out. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, I say, here, that's what I want. And, uh, you know, I hand it to the drummer, hand, hand the bass player a, a, a bass part from another record and whatever. Right? And so I thought, well, that's what you're supposed to do right? at, at first. And so the first couple of sessions I did, I, I, you know, did a little, I had a little drum machine at home and, and I play a little bit of bass and I'd write out a little bass part and I'd write out uh, the drum part and I'd give it to, to Tom and Barry. And uh, inevitably we'd start playing it and, and I'd think, gee, I, I thought it was going to sound better than this. You know, like this is not sounding, it's not making it. It's not really sounding right. And we'd play the, the song a couple of times. And finally, one of those guys like, you know, Barry, who's uh, such a gentleman, uh, would say to me, hey, uh, hey, man, uh, are you sure this is the drum part you want? Mm-hmm. And I'd say, well, no, I'm not sure of anything, honestly. I don't know. And he'd say, well, why don't you let me just try this? I got an idea. Just let me try this thing. See, see if you like it. And I'd say, sure. Oh, yeah, please. And so we'd do it. And, of course, it would be 10 times or 110 times better than what I had. Right? Yeah. And so, I, you know, and the bass would be the same with Tom with the bass. And uh, so finally I realized very quickly, you know, if you just hire the right guys and... and uh, what it's come down to now is what we were talking about earlier. I mean, if I hire the right guys and I say, okay, so here's, the, I wrote the chart and here's the idea I have. And I, and I play a little acoustic guitar and say, here's what I think it should, you know, kind of the area that it's in, mm-hmm. you know, the bag it's in or where it, where it sits musically, where it feels good musically in my mind. And yeah, they go, yeah, okay. And they, they listen for about 30 seconds. They go sit down at their instrument, pick it up, start to play and bam, there it is. Yeah. And it's, I don't have to, I've, I've never said anything to them other than they've listened to me and they know me enough that they, when they hear, they go, okay, yeah, I know what you're getting at by just hearing a, a verse and half a chorus. Yeah. And you find too, when you're using those type of players, if it's not coming together, then there's something else wrong. Yeah. So the song's not right or the melody's not right or something's yeah. not right. It's not them. No. There's something else wrong structurally yeah. with, uh, with the song or something that's, that's a real true sound sound or thing I found out when I was producing a lot. It was just like, sometimes you just get something. It's like, yeah, how come this isn't coming together? And it's like, okay, yeah, this is, there's just something. There's a flaw. Yeah. yeah there, there's a flaw. And that, that's why, uh, um, either you do it, you do it, you actually do two things. Um, I spend a lot of time. If I, if I'm doing arrangements for somebody for a record, I still do a lot of that. Yeah. Uh, singer-songwriters, or if I'm producing, or, or both, doesn't matter. But I'll spend a lot of time ahead of time trying to come up with the right chord changes and like re- basically sometimes totally rewrite the song musically from a harmonic con- uh, uh, concept, or you know, uh, from from the harmonic concept and and from the the approach of the feel and stuff. Yeah. And uh, and but then still, lots of times we get in the studio, and it doesn't matter because there's a you know, uh, again, the same group of guys um, that I've worked with for, uh, you know, endlessly for years, for 40 years. And uh, if we have the opportunity in the right environment, we'll get in the studio and start playing a song. And it doesn't matter if I wrote the chart or the bass player wrote the chart or the drummer, it doesn't matter. We sit down and we start playing and then somebody will say, okay, so it's all working, but what's wrong 
what's going on at the end of the chorus between the chorus and the, and the next verse. Yeah. There's something like it's just not happening. There's something. There, there's got to be a better idea. And one of us will say, "Who's got an idea?" So I say, "Well, what if we? What if we try this? Okay, good. Let's try it. If it works, everybody's everybody knows right away immediately. Yeah, yeah that worked. Okay, let's do that. And if it doesn't, somebody says, well, that sucked, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And no, nobody gets their feelings hurt. No, it's like no, that that didn't make it. Okay, I'm sorry, my idea was bad. Who's got a better one? Somebody else will say, what about, what about this? What about we do this? We, you know, what about we you know, make it a 2-4 bar and we, we, you know, we change this, we change the length and we, you know, uh, we, we change the chords and we do this and we do that. And we, we stop and give it a little time, moment to breathe, let the, 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 the singer pick it up. Yeah. And all of a sudden, boom, it's, yeah, there it is. Now it sounds right. And then there's some songs that just can't be helped. <laughs> Yeah, I know. There's nothing you can do. <laughs> There's nothing you can do. But you know, most of the time, you can find a way with enough people. Yeah. If you got enough people and good people in the room to make it work, someone will figure it out. Yeah, but sometimes it just it's not going to work. Yeah, you know. Uh, I was I was just thinking the uh, the first time that I remember that I met you, um, I was I can't remember who I was playing with a country artist of some sort, and uh, it was a telethon of some sort. <laughs> And you were the band leader for for all the artists are coming on. It's a TV thing, and uh, I still remember getting there, and everyone you know around me is going, "Hey, that's that's you know that's Mike Francis." That's, I think Sesniak was playing, and and all the guys, and I was like, "Wow, holy crap!" So you know, same type of thing for me. I was like, "Okay, we're going to get up and play." I was really nervous, right? And uh, I remember playing. And I remember distinctly, because I, I was set up and I was really close to you. And we did our thing and I kind of turned around and you you took a couple seconds to shake my hand and say, you know, really great job and whatever. And it was, you know, that little moment, you know, from someone when you were young mm -hmm. that was, you know, in their A game um, that just kind of went, wow, that that gave me that boost of confidence that stayed with me a long time well thank you i'm glad i'm glad i did that yeah a lot, it's a it's lot. it came back and i remember years later I've, I've, I've told you and i've said on the podcast before when i remember the first time hiring you for a session and and uh, same thing i was really nervous and i've always thought okay i'm i'm always using great musicians but then i just want i just want to take that next step and and start saying hiring some of their really you know the top guys from toronto and and you know you heard everything about them but i was i didn't know if i could sit in with you guys right oh, if yeah. you could fit in okay. um but when you showed up and you you did the gig it was like oh my god this was fantastic and everything just kind of fell into place and and you showed uh so much respect for me and and it was it was great i and, and after that i was like okay I just, just no turning back from that it was just <laughs> such a great experience um that you know, I really appreciate that. It was really great. You're really kind, but uh, you know, there, I mean, as I said earlier, there, there, I had a lot of people that that uh, helped me and gave me a hand and and you know, gave me a pat on the back too once in a while. And it's really important. I think it's. Yeah. I think you see too much of the opposite of that. Yeah. With musicians, you know, and I mean, we're always bad for talking about other musicians, right? And we yeah. and you do that, and and some a lot of it's just for fun, and everyone's got a unique personality. There's always something to say about somebody because musicians are quirky oh we're all nuts yeah different <laughs> people nobody's crazier than us yeah um but when it comes down there's lots of loyalty um and i think 
you know, that's, it's, and being able to see someone younger and, and, uh, uh, helping them, giving them a chance. I think that's all really, really, really important. Well, I, yeah, I, and I agree. And people did that for me. And so I've tried in my own little way, couple, you know, with uh, any time I can to, to pass that along. But, uh, you know, the other thing that I found out early, because I was always scared to death, you know, like what you were just talking about, yeah. when you walk into that world for the first time. And, I, you know, for months I was scared to death. And then I realized those guys aren't judging me. They're actually happy when I play, when I relax and play better. Yeah. They're actually happier and they like it. And they're, they're actually there to help me. They're trying to help me. They're not trying to make my life miserable. They're actually, they're rooting for me. They, they want to see it work out. Yeah. And, you know, I, and I, that, when I realized that, you know, again, the light bulb went off and I went, oh, that's, it's like a brotherhood where these guys want to see you succeed. Yeah. They want to see you, you know, uh, fit in and get better and, and grow. And, uh, and they're happy and they're glad to have you. So that was, uh, you know, a, a revelation for me. But a, 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 you mentioned telethons and I got to, you know, uh, we're talking about a lot of serious stuff. But I got to tell you a couple funny things because telethons or in any situation where it's, which like a telethon is, is absolutely live. Yeah. There's no tape. There's no redos. If, if the set falls down behind you, you got to keep playing. Yeah. You know, like there's no, you know, if, if the lights all go out, but... The, the recording equipment is still working. You keep on playing, right? It doesn't matter what happens, right? And uh, so I did a lot of those telethons. And, and um, one guy that used to produce a bunch of them uh, was a sweetheart of a guy, but he was a little bit too generous to the musicians. Like he used to have a suite for the musicians. We would start Friday afternoon. We would play Friday afternoon, do some rehearsing and play Friday night. Yeah. And then he would have a suite for the musicians with free booze oh yeah very bad idea <laughs> at 1 a.m with a bunch of music and then they, they're supposed to be back at noon the next day now there would be a band going all night long because some in first couple of years when i wasn't really in the scene i i would be doing the midnight shift with the you yeah. know the midnight guys or like all night long guys and then the other guys would come back at 11 or 12 the next day and then work all you know you'd work all day and into the night and then you'd go party again and then you'd have to come back sunday morning oh yeah and play all day until six o'clock. And there were some hilarious, absolutely hilarious moments. Uh, one, I'll, I'll tell you one that was absolutely frightening, but I'll tell you another one that was, that was just just absolutely funny, hilarious. But uh, one thing that happened to me was, uh, do you remember the uh, show called Barney Miller, a TV show? Mm -hmm. called? Right. The, the star of that show was Hal Linden. Mm -hmm. And he's uh, originally, like a lot of those actors a lot of those tv actors a shakespearean actor yeah. and he was in uh, uh niagara on the lake doing some shakespeare thing it was a it was a summertime telethon it was a sick kids telethon in the summer out at cfto and um so you know friday night they were talking well geez hal linden's in uh, in niagara maybe we can get him to come here early on if we can it'd be great so you know i thought well yeah that's nice you know whatever hal linden's not coming but you know sure so uh the talk was going on Friday night, then Saturday, and then Sunday we we get the uh, you know somebody gets a call and somebody call, and the director comes and says Al Linden's on his way. We sent a limo for him. He's going to be here. He's literally got about twenty or thirty minutes. We, like to, he, he's got to, they got to drive from Niagara to get here, they, and then they got to drive him back for his show today, yeah. right? So uh, he's going to have a half an hour when he gets here, and we have to do him whenever he gets, no matter what's going on. When he walks in the building, it's Hal Linden time. Okay, fine, whatever. 
So the band was set up at this particular time. I don't know why. Usually the, the piano player was generally the leader on these gigs, and the, and the piano would be in front of the band. Yeah. And then in the middle are the drums, and then... Uh, like you know, and then the the other guys are lined up between the piano and the drums, and uh, in, in, you know, in whatever's whatever they want. Horns on the left, and guitar and bass, on, two guitars and bass or whatever, and keyboards on the right, right, yeah. synths and stuff like that. So okay, so fine. So this one was they had set the band up in a funny place in the room and and in a funny way. It was all set up in a line. Uh, so the the piano player who was the music director was about twenty feet away to my right. Yeah. So they, and so like in between him was a couple were a couple keyboard players and a sax player, uh, and then behind us was the drums, and then and then on the on the end of the line was was myself and then the bass player, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's only just a small band with you know two uh, with one guitar and and a couple like two or three keyboards and and a sax player, right? Yeah. So, but but they set us up in this funny situation. So, um, Hal Linden comes. And he's got his music director with him, so that's good. And he's, the music director has charts, and he says, here's the charts. And, he, he, and he's really in a hurry, and they're frantic. Everybody's, you know, like, in a hurry, in a hurry, because we got to do a sound check and, and run the, this chart down. And it's a medley with five songs in it. Oh, yeah. Okay. So he throws charts in front of us, the, the music director, and he sits down at the piano, and they get the microphone working for Hal Linden, and Hal Linden's about 25 feet away from me, directly in front of me, right? Yeah. And so I can peek over the music stand and see him. So we start playing this thing, and I'm going, boom. It's, I've got a part that's written in the bass clef, first of mm-hmm. all, and I'm wondering, what's, what's, what's with this? And I'm going, boom, 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 and the bass player's we didn't know the bass player had the guitar part. I had the bass part. <laughs> so we get like, we get about six bars into or 10 bars into it or whatever. And Hal Linden says, stop, stop, stop. He's, he comes over, he says, what, what the heck are you guys doing? I said, I don't know. I'm playing this part. And he looks, he says, you got the bass part and you got the guitar part. So he flips them. Okay. And I went, oh, okay, whatever. So let's start again. Okay. So we start again. And, and so this medley has five songs, as I said, and it's in each song's in a different key. Mm-hmm. Some are in a different tempo. And one of them's in a different time signature. It goes from 4-4 four, four to 3-4, four, right? So we, we only get two songs in. And they say, you know, the, the director screams, stop, everybody stop, stop, stop. We're back on the air. Oh, yeah. We're live on air. We only got two songs into the medley. And now we got to do it. And, and, they, and they announce, and he, ladies and gentlemen, you know, uh, we're so lucky to have him here, blah, 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 from, you know. From Niagara on the Lake, uh, from, from right now, Hal Linden of Barney Miller fame, and here he is to sing a, this beautiful medley for you. And so, okay, so we start playing the medley, and we had never gotten this far, but the third song went, because, uh, you know, look, while you're playing, when you're used to doing it, mm-hmm. you can cheat and look ahead. And I see at the top of, like, the third or fourth page, it says, it, it, cha- it goes from 4-4 four, four to 3-4, tempo change, time change and it says guitar and vocal only <laughs> and we never got there yet right so okay yeah sure and I'm looking ahead and I'm thinking this is going to be great and the piano player is not in front of me where I can see him mm-hmm. he's down there so I'm you know I realize when we get there if I look at him when I look back I'm going to be lost yeah I'm toast right so all I, I think okay I got 
only one chance, one hope in hell here, right? My chance, my only chance, and luckily we could hear the monitors were good. We could hear Hal Linden singing. Mm-hmm. Is, is I'm gonna I'm gonna look at him like a laser beam. I'm gonna focus on him, and I'm gonna listen to him like a German Shepherd. And like <laughs> no matter where he goes, I'm going right. Mm-hmm. So I play the key change for him. And then I go, bring, you know, in the new key mm-hmm. and if on the first downbeat. And he starts, and I can see him like uh, sideways, kind of glancing over at me, mm-hmm. hoping that I'm gonna, <laughs> hoping and praying, like looking and saying, I hope you see what I see, you know, what I know. I hope you're looking at the chart. And, and I, I'm nodding, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm listening to him and, and I'm just watching and listening. And I play along with him and we get through it. And then the rest of the band comes back in and, and then it ends. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> and I'm sweating like I'm just, like, you know, like I just came out of the shower. Like I'm yeah. just soaking wet with sweat. And Helen, and he comes over and he puts his hand on my shoulder. He says, man, thank you. He said, I know what you did and I love you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, thank you, sir. But uh, I almost had a baby. Oh, know? no kidding. <laughs> you know, like really, I almost had a child. He said, yeah, I did too. He said, but we, we made it. He yeah. said, you did good. And uh, out of the corner of my eye, I, when that was happening, I could see the piano player waving his arms. I don't know if he was waving me off yeah. or if he was trying to, to give me the tempo or what, but I just watched Hal Linden and I just, I listened and watched Yeah. and I survived and, you know, but it was, it was terror. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that'd be scary. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. live TV. Cause like you can't, if it, like I said, if it crashes and burns, it, it crashes and burns, and you got to say, yeah. "Sorry, can, can we pick it up from there?" Sorry, folks, we had a big problem here, and you don't want that. No, <laughs> yeah, you don't want to be the guy that did that, because then you're famous for that, right? Yeah, you know, like that. The, every story in the world is going to be told about you. There's a, there's a bunch of tele, telethon stories. I'll tell you one more quick one. There was uh, a guy who, uh, who who was the music director on a lot of them. A guy named Jack Lenz, and he's a very talented man and a sweetheart of a guy. And mm-hmm. yeah, but he would get nervous. And, and sometimes, like there's, at some point there's always a panic in those three days, right? Yeah. And the director would be yelling at one thing at him and the producer would be yelling something else at him and he'd be trying to figure it all out and, and the, the artist would be, you know, coming on, uh, up, stepping up to the microphone, getting ready to sing a song or we'd be, we'd, we'd be going to commercial or something and, and he'd look at the rhythm section and say, we would need a cue to go to commercial. He'd say, uh, I'll play 11, Q11. Because he'd have a whole a whole list of cues written out, like little just little little vamps, oh, right? Yeah. So I'll let number eleven. Then he'd look at the horns, and somebody'd say to him, "No, no, Jack, and not yet. Wait, wait, wait. We got we have a few, few seconds. You just hang on." And he'd look at the horns. He'd say, "Okay, 17. And we'd hear him say that. But and and then the guy said, "Go, go, 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 go!" Right? And so he'd start counting. Well, once he starts counting, you you got to play. Yeah. And those guys are playing a different chart a different piece of music than you are and and they're not backing down and you're not backing down because you can't right like what are you going to do so it's just you got a cough and you get like music in two keys two tempos it's just a disaster right yeah uh two sets of chords it's just a whole nightmare but poor jack he got uh he got flustered once and uh if you remember the the song from uh, the big hit song from the, the tune from the movie dirty dancing mm-hmm. uh, you know the intro is well i've had the time, time of my life, life yeah. and i never felt this way before well if you listen to it if, if you and then the, the, there's that little part in the front where it's just the vocals but then when you if you analyze it you find out that um they're just singing half of the tempo of the regular so- of the song when yeah. it comes in, so it, you know if it's if it's this da 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 when the thing comes in is doom da 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 
It's that's where the tempo is, and that's where the feel is, right? So these there's these two poor singers out front. They were jingle singers, but they were giving them a chance to, to uh, you know, and, and they were just killing, filling time basically yeah. on the telethon to to do a, a feature, to be featured doing a number. So they were going to sing this song, and so again, somebody was, you know, two two or three people were talking to Jack at the same time. And then they said, okay, go, 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 we're, we're on, we're on, run, you know, mm-hmm. go, go, go. And so he counted it, one, two, one, two, three, four. And the, the two singers up there saying, well, well, I've had a time of my life and I never felt it before. And you can, for some reason, I don't know why, my wife had videotaped this little segment of the show. Oh, yeah. And I, I have it on videotape. Now, it's probably useless anymore. You couldn't see it. But you can see the two singers looking at each other out of the corner of their eye because they're thinking, it's going to turn into a bluegrass song. <laughs> Pretty close to the whole time. <laughs> and so they did their little thing up front. And, and then, thank God, you know, again, this is why musicians, you appreciate guys that, that literally save your life sometimes. The, this drummer named Jorn Anderson, who's a brilliant oh, yeah. player, beautiful player, and a be- sweetheart of a guy. And he, he knew better. He knew that Jack had messed up, you know, that it was just, a, you know, like a, uh, an error. And so when it came time for the groove to kick in, he wasn't supposed to play a field, but he just went, you know, and yeah. like, here it is. You know, the, this is the tempo. And everybody went, oh, thank God, thank God. Because <laughs> it could have been a horrible mess, right? It would have been so fast. and so, But he just said, I'm not letting that happen. Yeah. And he just took care of it musically, right? Yeah. So you, you, you can't, have, when, he, when a drummer plays that big of a fill that loud, you got to play with him. Yeah. <laughs> He's in charge right now. He's in charge, bud. And it's a good thing he was. Oh, yeah. You know, but uh, those That's are things scary. that happen. Yeah, the live TV is scary. Oh, God, yeah. You see, uh, you know, you see the big shows on TV now and, and you see what happens. And it's like, you, you understand why a lot of them will just go out and lip sync and, yeah. and, or else maybe just the band's fake and then they're singing lead because it's, man, the disastrous stuff that can happen. And, um Oh, yeah. You know, technically and you know, sound wise, and you know, by the time you do your sound check and you run your song, and to the time you actually do it, oh, there's yeah. a million different things that can go wrong, and ten million, yeah, <laughs> or, or or more. No, yeah. anything can happen. I mean, and yeah, I, you know, that that's the the beauty of it. That's the the charm of it. Yeah, but that's also the absolute terror of it too, right? That's why you see a lot of you know a lot of those shows, even the producers, uh, you know, floor directors and yeah, uh, engineers, they do all of them. Yeah. I mean, there's like a, one set of people that they go from the Oscars to the Grammys yes. to the whatever because they're the best. Yeah, they're the guys that do everything, and you know, and there's there's very few people, very extremely rare that somebody sings live now. Yeah, you know, I mean, uh, they'll they'll like for example the Super Bowl coming up. There'll be a few of the bands in the afternoon that are playing for the stadium where that'll be live. Yeah, but the 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 uh, the halftime show is going to be pre-recorded, and they're yeah. gonna, they're going to be uh, lip syncing and miming, you know. And unless it's you know it, back in the day, somebody like a James Brown or a Ray Charles is like, you don't need to help Ray Charles or James Brown. <laughs> yeah, they're used to that. Yeah, you know Aretha Franklin. Who are, well, not only that, just get out of their way and let them do it because they're they're just so great. I mean, and now you know with uh, Twitter and and everything, you you do one little thing wrong. Oh yeah, and it's just it's that's. It's all over the place. It's yeah, so crazy. Yeah, and it, you know things. 
if anything can, can go wrong, it will eventually something will go wrong for yeah. sure. So that's why a lot of producers and and artists are just afraid of it. Yeah, you know, and and so that's why you know, I got to forget what it was two or three years ago. But uh, Mariah Carey was on yeah, it was one, New Year's Eve thing, the New Year's yeah. Eve thing, and yeah. and she she didn't have any monitors. She kept telling them, "I can't hear anything." I can't, and they kept saying, "No, you, you'll have it. Don't worry, you'll have it." And then she was out there singing. She had no monitors and. I felt sorry for her, you know, yeah. the poor girl. I mean, she's a great talent, but uh, you can't sing when you can't hear. Yeah. You know, no, so what can you do? And she, yeah. she looked foolish and she felt horrible and she wasn't very happy. You could see that, but yeah. and I don't blame her, you know, so that, that was uh, you know, a technical error, but it, it yeah, happens. It's, it's it, going to happen. There's, you know, yeah, it's got to happen. This, yeah. this can't be perfect every single time. No, it, it, if you can laugh at it, it's a lot of fun. I know. That's what I like to do, even on stage or... Uh, you know, if you're working with people, you make a mistake. Everyone makes mistakes. Yeah, yeah. And I'm always, you know, some people get offended. I can, I can tell. Hey, maybe it's because they're not very confident on what they do. But um, it, you know, I'll be on stage. Something will happen, and and you know, I'll turn and take a look, and we'll laugh. And yeah, but and it's fun. You know, it's great. You know, it, it is was, great. It was silly, but then you get the, the ones I've worked with a few people, and they're just like you know, something happened, you turn around to kind of, and they won't even look at you. They're paranoid. Yeah. They're yeah. like, you know, and, or they just look like nothing happened at all. Yeah. Or else they'll do this, you know, they'll play the same thing again, make it look like they meant to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's yeah. all those tricks, right? And I was like, yeah, I know you made a mistake, but it was funny. Yeah. And I know you're not going to do it again. So it's, let's just laugh about it. Right. It's, it's okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you don't have to, nobody's going to die over this. Yeah. I mean, no. that, that's, it's just music. That's the other thing you got to get, 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 you know, Get uh, get back in the real world. It's just music, and it's, yeah. you know it's meant to be fun, and it's for That's enjoyment. What it's there for, yeah. But uh, you know, you, yeah, there's there's always things that that fall down or they don't go, you know, don't go right, and yeah. and it's yeah, just lighten up and have a good time. Yeah, you know, we'll all survive this. No kidding. Well, we should wrap it up. It's been a great talk. Uh, I think we could do this again sometime and and get into oh, there's guitars and stories and yeah, and, uh, but it was an, it was a great visit back and figure out where you got you know to where you are now and and um you know I, I always know you every time i've ever given you a call or chatted with you you're you're always practicing <laughs> sort of like i always tell everyone i don't know anyone who practices as much as you do and you, you do those things you do the, the the fundamentals the scales and you were talking earlier uh and it was a great lesson for anybody i think when you in your in your studio here you've got right in front of your keyboard right there it's two metronomes two metronomes yeah yeah one one stops working the other one will yeah <laughs> i'm ready and you're practicing you you played me the tempo of, of yeah. what you do scales at and it was really slow oh yeah it's not 63 beats a minute it's not fast it's just no. slow slow yeah slow there it is and yeah. that's that's where you need to practice you can play fast as much as you want but playing accurate in time slow is way harder yeah. than, than it is fast. Well, so, yeah, somebody said, uh, a drummer said something to me once, a friend of mine, and, and he said he had a teacher who said to him, if you can't play it slow and make it properly and make it sound good yeah. and, and, and have it sound clear, if you can't do that, how the heck do you think you can do it fast yeah. and make it sound good? You can't. You're just stumbling over it. So you're just yeah. fumbling and stumbling around is what you're doing. So so slow down learn to play it slow and focus on the all the all the the minute details yeah. of what you're doing and then when you play it fast it'll be easy 
Yeah. And it's true. It, you know, it, it's, it's, easy, it's way harder to play slow than it is to play fast. Yeah. Much harder to play slow and consistent and even. Yeah, and accurate. And, yeah, yeah, accurate and, you know, in, in, in the same pocket, in the same tempo, and, the, the, you know, the, the same way. It's much harder to do that slow than it is to, to play a million miles an hour because uh, that's, you know, uh, it just is. It just is a fact of life. Yeah. So there you go. It's, and it's, it's, it's not that I'm, I'm always, I hope I'm not always practicing the same thing when you call, but I'm always, I'm usually put, got a guitar in my hands. That's, that's yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, it's, it's a disease. Yeah, it's, it is. It <laughs> really is. Before we go, uh, obviously, uh, a lot of people call you Peppy. Oh, yeah. Where did that come from? That's, you know what? Um, I wish I had a funny story for you. Yeah. I wish I had a story that was it's hilarious, not, but it's not funny at all. Uh, it's just one of those, it's one of those things that happens to you yeah. um, by accident. Like, uh, it, was, it was when I was working in the States and um, as we both know, a lot of, uh, I was illegal. I was underage. Yeah. I was illegal. My parents drove me across the border with the, my guitar and amp and my suitcase in the, in the trunk. And uh, everything was illegal, right? Yeah. So I'm underage. I'm illegal in the States. I'm everything. But this is 1969. It wasn't like it is now. Yeah. Right? And so we both know that a lot of illegal immigrants in the United States are Spanish. Yeah. <laughs> From Mexico and, you know, South America, right? And they call him all Juan or Pepe. Yeah. And so because I was, uh, you know, I'm a little guy, I got dark hair, and, you know, I, I look close enough to being the, the type maybe. Mm-hmm. And it, so somebody just started calling me Pepe one day <laughs> as a joke. And, you know, I, you know, while I was there, I mean, that's what my name became, you know, uh, to all the people I work with in the States. And then when I came home and then I migrated to Toronto, as I told you earlier, mm-hmm. Um, I thought, oh, good, I got rid of that. You know, it's, you know, it's not that it bugged me or anything. It's just like, yeah. I got rid of the nickname. That's good. That's fine. I'll be Mike again. And then I ran into Stevie Smith and his brother Greg, and they said, first thing they said out of their mouth was, hey, Peppy, how you doing? <laughs> and there were other musicians around, and they all heard that, and, they, and everybody started calling me that. Yeah. And then it just it stayed with me my whole life. Yeah. And somebody's calling right now saying, where are you? Hey, Peppy. Peppy, where are you? (laughs) Well, thanks again for uh, spending a couple hours here. That was a great insight. And uh, let's do it again and let's hang out some more. It's been way too long. Yeah, it has, man. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. You're a kind man. Thank you.